I've watched I've watched quite a few people die. Um, I've also like a few of them have been very close family members, and it's always the same. They get to that end stage of life, and you see them go through it where they're like, they all all three of them have said the same thing like, hey sitting at a picnic table eating and we could see over the hill where the smoke was coming from earlier in the past couple days where now we are getting fire tornadoes ripping up into the sky so we are having like active tree candling which is where basically a whole tree just lights up into into visible fire like you know that like yeah and that's just what i felt and then it was just pain in my shoulder and oh shit that no it, it won't last like all that fucking masquerading thing where where you're like this is my life this is my relationship this is my work this is nothing will last and life will take away everything from you so if you can learn to just you we're so used to getting feedback right you go to work you get feedback you talk with somebody you get feedback this little potato That's of a human has one feedback mode which is crying mm -hmm. i remember not being able to sleep because i was trying to picture in my mind uh the, the infinity mm -hmm. why do you think coaches quit like you're you're you used to be a coach yeah what you are seeing right now i don't see the same thing what you are seeing it's an image that is made mm -hmm. in the back of your brain. Like this is a person that you love with your whole heart and to hear them say that, you're like, oh God. <laughs> but then at the same time, you flip the scenarios and you're like, I'm sorry, but I do the same. Mm. What if you were the only one, the only real human conscious? The whole world's NPCs. The whole world's can, can you believe like- the Craziest experience I think I ever had in terms of like just general craziness was- These wildfires that was that was wildly. Man. Everyone we know right now, you take, let's take a hundred years, you, me, everyone we know will be dead. Yeah. It, it's, it's linked with this concept that I love of be connected and not attached. What drives this, this, uh, this path to you? I'd be lying if I said it was anything other than... Oh hi, the following is a conversation with Alex Torin. We talk about his path and career as a firefighter, his experience through last summer's wildfires, we talk about um, the experience of being a new parent, we talk about life, death, among other things as always. This is the curious art of being human. My name is Robin. If you're new here, welcome. If you feel called to support this project, I will love it if you could subscribe, if you could send this to whoever uh, you know might like it. Feel free to comment, to give me feedbacks, give me thoughts. And I think that is pretty much it. Yes, yes. And now my friends, Alex Torin. Thank you. You know, I was I was doing a lot of stuff I want to say. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.
cold plunge and cold plunge, yeah. warm drinks, eh? How was the plunge? It was the good. naked plunge. Yeah. Don't forget your underwear or your towel. Mm-hmm. Totally. But that's how it goes. You never be prepared for everything, so. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to say, hey, don't look. I'm going yeah, in. Totally. <laughs> Is it official that you're you're moving to Prince Rupert? Can we talk about this? Or yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my wife and I, we got excellent news on Monday. Yeah. I got a call from uh, Chief Beckwith and Deputy Chief uh, O'Hara from the Prince Rupert Fire Rescue. Um, I just completed a interview and then a two-day in-person um, assessment with them, physical, written tests, and all that. Um, left things off on a pretty good term on Thursday with them. Drove the 16 hours back, which yeah. is a long way. And um, spent the weekend being super nervous. Kind of always waiting for that call. It's tough when you're always waiting for somebody else's decision. Yeah. Um, and got a call at about 3.15 on Monday. And they just said, we'd, we'd like you to join the team. And it was uh, after being up there and seeing what that crew does and what they did and how they interacted. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel like I was getting invited into a, a company or a place of work. I felt like I was getting invited to a family. So Nice. So how what's the, the position to, to be? So it'd there? be... As a hired on to a as a firefighter, yeah. But in the I guess you'd call it in the in the firefighter terms, it'd be as a, a probie or a, a probationary firefighter, which means you're like you've you've got the job, but you've got six months to a year to make sure you you prove yourself for it, and and you make a good fit with the team, and mm. uh, I think mostly a good fit for the community. Yeah. And who decides that if you're, <laughs> so I had, I had, fit. yeah, you know what? I think it's going to be the, the rest of your crew and the captain, like mm. if they're there in place, they've put yeah. the, the time, the effort in, they, they kind of know what they're looking for. And so I think those guys make the recommendations up to your, your, uh, deputy chief in chief. And of course they, they see what you do on the floor. They get the feedback, they hear about it and yeah, they decide if you're good after after six months yeah how was uh prince rupert did you get around the, the, the town and like how does that yeah you know what cold it's, colder it's tough to distinguish what we felt and what we thought about prince rupert with what we're told about it mm. like we were really told going up there like oh my gosh it rains 265 days of the year <laughs> yeah. you know you live in the okanagan right now enjoy your sunshine because you're mm. never going to get it up there um interesting yeah and I got to say, um, when we started driving from Prince George over to Prince Rupert, the country that we drove through is just outstanding, mm-hmm. like some really beautiful scenery. And then you hit Terrace and it's remote. Like you feel like you're alone. Because you are probably. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. There's spots <laughs> up there where nobody's ever stepped before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. That's exciting. Especially when you come from Vancouver where like, yeah. yeah, but you hit the coast and you drive along this bay and it's just intense. Meanwhile, it goes, when we were driving up, it was probably about one o'clock in the afternoon. And you know when your car automatically dims the lights? Yeah. So I'm driving up and this big rain cloud comes overhead. Yeah. And the car's like, ah, nighttime. That's how dark it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's going to be life, hey? Yeah. And so... We got up into Prince Rupert and I looked around. And I was like, 
It just looks like a like a town. Mm. It just looks like an, a, another city. Like yeah. For a little while, I was like, man, it's like being back in Port Moody. And um, we went out for we stopped at our bed and breakfast. We got a bed and breakfast, which was like what a great deal. Ninety nine bucks, you get breakfast. This awesome king bed, like in this beautiful. It's called Tall Tree. Shout out to those guys, by the way. And uh, <laughs> we got in, gorgeous. Lisa and I decided to go for food. I was excited for the seafood because there's plenty of it. And we get to this. Oh, is there a lobster rolls? Is there a lobster there? There's probably a well, crab, I, I think. love lobster rolls. There's probably lobster there too, but I went after the, the crab. It was mostly the scallops and the halibut mm. and the fish and chips. Yeah. But we went to go stay at the, the hotel mm-hmm. and... Um, grabbed uh grab like the instagram spot like you know how every city's got an instagram spot so it's like this corner table glass on both sides you're looking out over the port and it's just beautiful we sat there and that was i think was the first moment where i was like you know what i could really see us Mm. living up here and then we looked down because you're up quite a few few stories and you're up there and we looked down and there's a little gymnasium with a bunch of kids doing gymnastics running around and mm-hmm. i was like oh this is like a kid orientated mm. place so yeah probably a good place to build a family to sum it up i'm yeah, yeah i think we're really gonna like yeah. that's what we thought about it yeah that's nice i like the idea of uh, a smaller town where it's not super crowded and it's not too busy i hate i'm would never leave downtown a, a busy city or a big city. I, I just like hate the, the constant noise and Makes stimulation. Yeah, it's uh, more and more. I like this idea of like living in a more remote town. It's crazy back in Vancouver, or well, I lived in Port Moody, but you go to Vancouver, playing rugby with um, Simon Fraser. You'd always go out on Saturday nights. Is the thing. But then I realized pretty quickly that the only times I'd be caught dead downtown was if, if I'd go down there already hammered. Mm. <laughs> like if I'm sober, no yeah. way, I'm not going down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I don't know what that says about me as a person, but. Do you still play uh, rugby? I mean, no, I. There's a story behind that, a, yeah. a pretty severe injury, but. Um, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. It's starting playing rugby. I started playing rugby because. I, uh, he's one of my best buddies. Um, he, we didn't see eye to eye like growing up Mm. and then we got into the same high school and then started having like, you know, the usual ninth grade conflicts in the hall. And then I think one day, I think he said something like, you know, if you're man enough, you join the rugby team. I'm, I'm man enough. I'll join the rugby team. (laughs) I joined the rugby team. (laughs) I practiced. I thought the practice was tough. And then played the first game and that's the first time where like I basically went home and I had never been more sore like Mm. so sore that I don't think I took my shoes off I don't think I took my coat off I pretty much got in the door and laid down and I was like this is where I'm going to be for the next two days (laughs) and then I I I got in what was called um they put me in as a forward which means you're kind of like the big like out of the sports you're the big brutes Mm. um and so a lot of the, the scrummaging that happens, um, I, I, the next day I couldn't lift my, my head at my chin off my chest, oh, just shit. so sore in my neck. And I don't know, 
I think it was everybody on the team got pretty beat up that day. We played against Chilliwack and uh man, those guys, there's something in the water out there. Those are big <laughs> farm boys. Yeah. And so yeah. the mutual suffering I think brought the team together. Mm. And then also it was interesting is like we sucked and we lost really bad. Mm. And I think that made a lot of people want to do better. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how it started out. And then, um, playing with Simon Fraser university was like a whole nother family. Mm -hmm. They just brought you in and it didn't matter who you were or what you liked, what you didn't like. Um, you could play Dungeons and Dragons. You could have been a jock. Like it, that's the scope of the team. Um, you could be doing really good in school. You could be doing not so good in school. And then you'd start playing rugby and everybody was just one big melting pot. And you'd, you'd get smoked on the field. You'd smoke people on the field. And then afterwards you'd go and sit in the sauna and you'd like slap each other on the back and tell yeah. jokes and just a whole nother family. Of course, the, the rugby culture is pretty, um, party dominant too, right? Like it's yeah. not just, it's not just a, a sport on the field, but it's, it's a lifestyle and a social part afterwards. <laughs> so you go out on Saturday nights and you, you know, you go do see the rugby sevens and I don't know. I think the, the craziest thing we ever, the craziest experience I think I ever had in terms of like just general craziness was, um, on the pitch, I think I, I'm not a fighter mm. and the, the match just got so heated and, and, um, this one eighth man was just pissing me off. And at finally I was like, this is it. I'm going to get knocked out, but I'm going to take my shot. Mm -hmm. And so he, his hand was laying down on the ground in the bottom of a ruck. I looked at him dead in the eyes. He's pinned down there and I just stepped on his hand. Oh shit. And I was like, here we go. This is how it's going to go. And that's, that's tough part about that level of rugby, like you have professional rugby, which stops being so brutal because it starts being an extreme sport where it's like, you're not going to hurt the person. You're not going to do any of that. But when you play like third division, second division rugby, get a bunch of goons in there who, who live for the, the fighting and the scrapping and mm. you start stomping on people's hands or somebody will poke your eye in the mm. bottom of a ruck or something like that. And goes around, comes around, you get it done to you. You do it to other guys people get upset in the heat of the moment for the funny thing is you, sometimes you do something to somebody and you don't even mean to do it. Mm. And then it starts a brawl. And yeah. Anyways, he stood up and he, he raised his hand back and I just went, all right, lay it on. Right. And I, I think he tried to throw a punch and luckily it just glanced off. I had a scrum yeah. cap on too. So mm. it's good. And then at the end of the game, I walked over with a beer and just said, Hey, sorry about your hand. <laughs> yeah. is this old guy he just slaps me on the back and he says we play rugby kid don't be sorry about it give me that beer <laughs> you know yeah yeah that's, you just drink a beer with him yeah. afterwards and it's like you know this guy's hands all i don't know, hope he wasn't a tradesman yeah. or anything because it's all bruised up but yeah. so i had um a grade three separation of my uh right ac joint and um it uh it's my tackle shoulder, you know, and you're, mm -hmm. you go through, we were playing a sevens tournament at that point in time. And it was just like hit after hit after hit. And uh, when you get to be a, a decent hitter, a tackler, like the next best guy on the team will show up on the far side and that you'll start to hit bigger and worse guys. And then finally somebody would put a target on your head and say, Hey, we're just going to put a brick in front of you. 
Mm-hmm. And so I came over a rock and hit a brick. And I remember my eyes are closed because I'm an idiot and I don't play with my eyes open. Mm-hmm. Um, I close them when I go into tackles. It's just a habit. I don't know. I never have my eyes open, which is probably why I never was a good rugby player. But my I eyes are it's closed. Just a, um, maybe a safety mechanism. Yeah. But my eyes are closed. I hit them. And um, the sound and the and the the vision that I saw behind my eyes was just like, velcro tearing like you know that like yeah and that's just what i felt and then it was just pain in my shoulder and oh shit tried to come off the ground and couldn't it was like all popped up and mm. i wasn't sure if it was a collarbone or or what it was and but of course the most important thing was that i had a a jersey on from a team that i didn't belong to and there was no way that jersey was getting cut off mm. so it was like go to the sideline take a quick swig of whatever somebody there has in their flask and then the team medic pulled the jersey over my head and it was like lights out oh, and then kind of come to and you're like man that hurt a lot but at least i didn't cut up a jersey because these things happen in rugby right people mm-hmm. get mangled in their jerseys and they go to the hospital they cut them off and you end up having a jersey set where normally it's like numbers one through 25 you've got one two four six seven and like all these jerseys are just destroyed by the time it's done mm-hmm. yeah and so um then from then what did you uh did you get to hospital right away and they 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 told you what it was and then i wanted to stay um, i wanted to stay because i'm oh, an so idiot you, s- you stayed on the yeah. side i stayed sure. on the sideline and um team medic wrapped my arm up and then he kind of did a little assessment with me and he said i don't think it's a collarbone because there's no deformity there but your shoulder's obviously slumped it's not dislocated so i'm thinking it's a, a pretty good separation and it was it was gross you get like the little nub sticking out and um my wife at the time was also playing in that uh in that tournament and so later she came over and she said hey you should probably go and get that checked out mm. and i was like okay probably <laughs> yeah. get that checked out probably and then she's uh she's like do you want me to come with you and i'm like no because the worst thing you could do for a rugby person is take them away from rugby Mm. i was like no you have to stay you have to stay finish the tournament out like we haven't even got to the good social part afterwards Mm -hmm. the beer garden i was like once the tournament's over everybody goes to the beer garden you can't you can't miss that (laughs) that. i'll call i'll call my poor mom up who's taking (laughs) care of my baby at the time like hey can you help uh take me to the hospital and so family stepped in big there my brother took me to the hospital um we were there for quite some time um they did uh they did an x-ray and they're like yeah it's it's separated there's not not too much we can do it's grade three and at that time uh like there's you could probably elect to have a surgery done if you wanted because grade three is kind of the line where you don't normally get surgery done grade four grade five is like yeah somebody's gonna go in there and fix it up and so i was like okay cool well we'll just sling it up and got home lisa came back she was pretty my wife Lisa she's pretty worried about things and we were actually driving back to so we were down in Vancouver when this happened we were driving back to Kelowna the next day and it was a miserable drive poor Lisa had a like a one-year-old in the back seat and me with my arms strapped up and they gave me some they gave me some pretty good drugs because every little like it was nuts every deep breath every bump every time you change position it's like it's like having your shoulder like the shoulder is such a crazy joint yeah. right like it's 
it's almost like it's floating, right? So mm -hmm. it's got like three anchor points. You take one of those anchor points away and then any way you are, it's just in discomfort. So you can't really sleep. You can't mm -hmm. breathe deep. You laugh. It hurts. You cough. It hurts. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a pain. And you were at the time you were coaching. Yeah. At the time I needed my body for work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do you, when this happens, like what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Like to how, how am I adapting my, my life to this? Because it's a direct, problem for for your job like how did you I mean how did you adapt working through that you know what's crazy is I think when it first happened when I was still laying there and we were figuring out what was going on I kind of pulled my head off the ground I looked down at my toes and I could still wiggle my toes and I was like oh it's not my neck or my spine like mm -hmm. we'll be fine yeah all right there's this pain but it's an arm you could live without an arm right yeah. it's I you know it'd be nice to have it but It's like, whatever happens, it's going to be fine. And then the good news is I was surrounded by a lot of really great people where I was coaching um, at Forge Valley Fitness. And, you know, rehab there was like they'd support you in any way. They'd modify it for you. And uh, I went to go see um, Mark Murdoch up at base camp. And, like, that guy's just a genius. Like, he's not a lot of the problems that I have with a lot of healthcare practitioners and, and even some coaches as well is like, they think they know what's best. And so you have to adhere to their plan. And it's probably true. They probably do know best and they mm -hmm. probably have a wicked plan. But Mark was like, Hey, I'm, he had a plan, but he was also going to listen to me and hear what I wanted and what I wanted to do and how it was going to work for me and help me work through it. And like, we hit it hard as soon as I could take it out of the sling and start bearing weight onto it again we did and then rehab exercises things that you think are like trivial like I couldn't raise my arm up from a standing position so like put the fingers to the wall and then use your fingers to help crawl your arm up to a point that was bearable and come back down just get some range of motion back into it a little bit of traction and that was the very beginning and it from there it just kind of progressed um at the time I was pretty worried about atrophy and and like what was going to happen to the gains like didn't want to mm. lose the gains from the time right it's a big thing yeah, you're like it's all about the gains especially <laughs> especially if you're like a crossfit enthusiast you're like i'm never gonna snatch again like yeah yeah this is the worst and so but mark was just like hey this is this is what you got to do uh i was working with a group called prescript as well mm -hmm. they were doing a, quite a bit of education for me um and so i while I was in there to be educated, we also got to ask a lot of questions. And so I was like, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Here's my x-ray. Like here's the freaking pinky sized gap where my AC joint should be. Like, what do you guys recommend? What's your thoughts for this? They're a lot more on the bodybuilding kind of side of things, a lot more of the traditional gym stuff. And a lot of them had a lot of good answers. Like when I was able to, it was, um, no load bearing, but mirror the movements. So you do a shoulder press and you'd be able to load your good arm and then it was just moving the empty arm and I guess as it was explained to me is some way the brain works it basically tricks those muscles into think they're working the same as your other arm mm. so you don't you don't quite lose as much as you think you're going to which was the case interesting yeah, yeah. it was also a, it was also a really pleasant break from 
like CrossFit style training yeah. where it was like, Hey, you can't do CrossFit, but is guess what? We can get you into doing three point rows. You can do three point rows. You can do uh, pec flies again pretty soon after and back to the basics. Mm-hmm. And that, that was good. Yeah. The break from the intensity of CrossFit is, is really good sometimes, especially when you're, when you're doing it to a point where every day you do the workout and when you finish with the workout, you're pretty much like rolling your body all over the ground because you gave it pretty much it all, um, which is, which is, can be great, right? And like, if you're competing or, or whatever, but then I remember that feeling as well, like when you stop doing this and especially when you're a coach, you're gonna do the the workout like you kind of want to do uh, something good because um we remain humans and uh when but when you stop that pressure that that you stop like putting so much intensity into your workout that you, you you're rolling yourself over after everything it gives you uh, a very enjoyable mental break and kind of like you're kind of rebuilding and re you change your sp- perspective on training and you kind of learn to put intensity on something when you want and then pull back on some other things and, and then do several other type of trainings. But the pure CrossFit thing, um, at some point it, it can be, I mean, for me, I realize you don't realize when you're in it, right? Like when you're in it every day, you do the workout and you go really hard. Um, and then when you don't have to do this anymore, like you can, you realize how much, uh, yeah, how much it's taxing. Cause, uh, you hear a lot that thing of, uh, well, e- exercising, like give you energy and stuff like that, which is completely true to a certain degree where it can also take you a lot of energy. If you can train, if you train, do one workout, two workout a day or whatever, and you really put, and you really do this seriously and put the intensity and the it's not giving you any energy for, I mean, in my personal case, like sometimes after a workout or what, I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything else because I'm fucking dead. Uh, so at a certain point, it's like, how do you manage this? And it, it's a lot about what do you want? What are you doing with your days and what do you want to do? And at some point, if you put like all your energy in a workout, but you're not a professional athlete or you're not um you know competing or it takes you energy from like doing all the things and so where's the the balance and now now today i'm I'm like trying to find that threshold of where it's optimal where i do the exercising the training but it doesn't take away energy for all the rest because it's a it's a support thing and it's not where my most of my like attention or energy should go you know, it's like that that thing or where is where is the right amount so you get all the benefits, but it doesn't fuck you up for your day, basically. Yeah. And and that's uh, interesting to to get on. But I mean, CrossFit is great. It's just because like it's just the problem when you have too much ego into it and you, you can't stand and you you put too much um too much uh, importance into uh, scoring. That does the main thing to me is the problems that's the scoring in, in, in regular CrossFit training, putting names on the board with like scores and times and stuff. That that is an aspect that I think um, 
shouldn't be all the time. Like I think you should have like one workout a week maybe where you score all the rest of the time because too many of us were not wise enough um, to to handle that. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I'll, I'll talk just for myself back in the days, but I think it, for, it, it holds a lot of people back because there's a lot of people that... that you do you, you know. do wait like you're in the CrossFit gyms and and you're doing the CrossFit workouts and if you're in a group class you're you're often you see people do it as a coach you don't necessarily know it's crazy when you go from being an athlete to a coach or you go from being somebody who's participating in the class to being a coach you don't recognize it but when you're a coach you get to see what people do and they do way too much of this like oh, hey what a, oh shit you know that guy's got well, let me go quick and adjust the weights right I'm, I'm gonna try a little harder right and it's the magic and it's also the downfall of it yeah because the magic is it helps you push into that like super compensation side of things where it's like you go past your boundaries and then you get better because of it but the other thing too is like there's a certain time and there's a place where certain people shouldn't do that mm-hmm they push past their boundaries and they get into a certain mindset and they look around, they do this and then something happens, right? Like you supersede your body's ability to handle it. Yeah. And then you get into trouble and it's like, man, I've done that chasing you in workouts before, right? Where you're just like, dang, this guy's got this on. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like the tough part is there's so many different components of CrossFit where, yeah you look at it and you're like, Oh, I can do this level at, at the same level as he's doing it. So if we do this workout, which is completely different, different movements, I'm going to do the same level as this guy. Mm -hmm. And then you get smoked. Yeah. Like you said, I call it drama. You finish a workout and you're like rolling on the floor and you like, you don't have control of your, your body or your mind after that because mm -hmm. you're, it's all fried yeah. and it's just doing what it wants to do to get like any ounce of relief of anything afterwards. And, there's yeah there's days where you finish that and you're just cooked yeah but it, it's yeah like you said it's like both uh, of these because it's never like crossfit is not the problem the problem is is how it can be done right the problem is always the people and not really not really the, the sport itself crossfit is like it, it's it's the ego it's the, the the too much competing over training right type type of thing but it's also why it's popular because it's fucking addictive and it's like it, it's dead the excitement like it brought back the excitement when regular training by yourself like can be boring like crossfit you have that excitement and when people that are into it like when you get to the gym like you have that that thing of like oh gonna, here we go buckle which up. is good yeah. and it's it's always you know you have to be able to regulate yourself um but the only thing, yeah, is is if you're able to regulate yourself and understand how much energy do you do you want to put in this this thing, and for what, and for what are you training, and why are you training, and understand that we have so much energy in a day, and that like you have to select, you know, in in where and which day do you want to maybe hammer yourself on that, and you know that you're, you're going to be a vegetable on this day or one day where you want to put your energy in something else and you want to pull back. It's all like, how, how can you blend this in, in your life and not get too much? It's, 
especially if you're not you know a, a professional athlete or or you're not competing or whatever not falling into the trap on pouring all your chips into this and then you know you, you you're you're pretty much fucked to do anything else and i i know this because i'm talking from experience yeah oh man we i uh i started cross it down on the coast And I went, I went, I went religiously. Um, <laughs> that was that story the first time you. That yeah. So I, you know what? There's there's good CrossFit stories. There's bad CrossFit stories. There's <laughs> like my origin story with CrossFit is. Um, I don't want to. I don't know what to say. Like heroic, but dumb. So I walked into the gym and I was playing rugby at the time, and you know I was looking for something to increase my performance and. Um, at the same time I had, I had just started like working full time and I was like, okay, but I also want time to work and do other things. And so like going to the gym to train for rugby traditionally is like an hour, an hour and a half to, to two hours. If you fit everything in from your strength to your conditioning, to, you know, the plyometrics and on top of that, anything you need to do for recovery, it's nuts. And so I was like, Oh, what can I, I can do this for an hour and it's supposed to be really good. I walked into the gym and I was like, Hey, I want to, want to give it a shot you know i had the rugby player build and so like oh they look you look like you work out i was like yeah i think i work out like, well come come drop into a class and i was like okay sounds good and man that i think the workout's like it's slipping my mind but it was during the open i want to say 16.2 or whatever like one rep max clean and jerk followed by burpees over the bar something like that and they're like have you ever cleaned before and i was like no what's that And they're like, it's this. And they coach showed me like a picture perfect clean. And I was like, oh, just like, you just like pick the bar up. And he's like, yeah, you like pick it up and get it on your shoulders. And then you get it over your head. I was like, oh yeah, okay. So just do it. He's like, yeah, man, just do it. I was like, okay, let's go. And we were like, started, you know, 95 pounds. Okay, enough muscle and get it up there. And then started to add and I could still keep up with these guys. And then it got to like 185 and I was still keeping up. And then Holy shit. <laughs> all of a sudden it was 225 on the bar and they're like, well, you're good to this point. Like give it a shot. And I think that first day I like cleaned 225 <laughs> with like no, not very minimal, yeah. like very minimal coaching instructions. Holy and shit. that was, yeah. And then not only that, but after that, they're like, all right, now we got to do a bajillion burpees over the bar. Yeah. which laid me on my butt and maybe it was a rugby thing but i like that like mm. i i think there's a picture somewhere on a buddy's phone of me like eyes wide open on my back after that workup being mm. like what just happened yeah but that was my that was my first cross that's right? insane yeah it's uh one thing did i have to did because when i i arrived here there was no it back home like it, we didn't get in france the concept of on-ramp uh, and one thing that uh, apparently is pretty regular here like the, the on-ramp which i found really good for like that type of situation because the problem with crossfit is that it's too there's too much thing it's too you need to be too good to 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 be able to really navigate that that sport and and throwing somebody like this it's it's um It's insane. And when you think also like, I mean, just like coaching, not, not even doing it, but just also coaching it, the, the level, the, the, 
the virtuosity that you need is insane when you see like all these different things. If you just take like Olympic weightlifting, this is this is fucking years to just be able to do this properly and let people alone. dedicate their life. Yeah, it's, to those it's two lifts. Yeah, and then yeah, man, as a coach, I'd hear it all the time. Like people come in and they they might have done an on ramp with you, and then they've been to two or three classes, or maybe even two or three weeks of classes. And being Olympic lifting day, and they're getting frustrated with themselves because their clean form's not good. Yeah. And like my favorite thing, because you'd see it click for them. My favorite thing is I pull them aside and say, "Hey, guess what? People dedicate their lives to these two lifts. <laughs> yeah. You're like three weeks into it. You're four weeks into it, and you're yeah. getting mad Relax. at yourself that you can't do it. Like it's okay. It's yeah. trust me. Oh yeah. It seems like the end of the world right now. No. But like, man. People dedicate their lives to those lifts. It's a freaking Olympic sport. <laughs> yeah. You know? No, it's insane. Yeah. 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 It, it was my favorite thing was uh, teaching uh, on-ramp. Yeah. It was like people who started, who never squatted, never done anything. That was and my just least like favorite. starting from, that was my favorite thing. <laughs> so that was your least favorite? Different, so like different coaches, different things. It was my least favorite. It's because um, you go, I came at it from, from being somebody who practiced crossfit and then to jump into the coaching role where it's like i know how to do this there's a magic to helping somebody or, or making somebody understand how to do it themselves mm-hmm. and that's tough yeah. it takes a lot of skill to get there and so bringing people into it you start to learn tricks and tips and and there'd be books to help you out and um you get there eventually but that on-ramp was like I'd be like, oh, man, this is tough. Once you're in group mm-hmm. classes and you get to, like, you really get to refine things and work on things and encourage people and, man, you watch their smiles when they get something or, like, you see you see their pride. Mm-hmm. It's intense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Um, even doing it for a few years, like, this, this is... I think it's a really good skill to have you know, even if you have like a short coaching career mm-hmm. or short knowledge in fitness and training, I think it's an insanely good for anybody uh, background and knowledge to have that you're going to carry and it's going to use, it's going to be useful for your, basically your entire life. If you, because we're supposed to be kind of training our entire lives. Yeah. Um, but yeah. To go back to CrossFit, I mean, we were talking about the different styles of working out, like the traditional stuff like that. I'll still stand by that. I, I do believe the CrossFit is probably the most effective way to train for. Oh yeah. The, like the, the run hit runs type of sports or, or like firefighting even where it's like some tasks you need to be strong. Some tasks you need to be able to do a lot with a little oxygen. You don't know what tasks are going to be. I definitely stand by that. Oh yeah. Oh, it's the. I mean, it's probably. I mean, the effectiveness is. is there's no doubt. Uh, Why do you think coaches quit? Like you're, you're, you used to be a coach. Yeah. Right. I used to be yeah. a coach. I think um, the reason why I change it is not related to CrossFit. Um, to to me, I. I came to a, re- <laughs> to a realization after 31, <laughs> soon 32 years of life, 
that I am a, a generalist and not a specialist. Mm-hmm. So I I made peace with the idea because we live in a world where it's not necessarily re- well recognized. This, but that I I can do. I have the feeling, and I it's kind of like I have evidence out of it. But I have the feeling that I can do anything. Uh, I can be pretty good at anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never be extremely good at anything. I'll never be an expert or or very specialized in 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 something. But I can be pretty good at anything mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's the feeling that i have um sounds like a true it's not you know in all humility like I'm, it's not at all i'm not saying oh i'm i'm good at everything uh, but i with it i'm saying that i'll never be an expert at anything you yeah. know what i mean and and so kind of the way i i i build this thing is that i i let myself go into something do it and then at some point, fairly quickly, my mind is going to visualize like the next like five, ten years. And I'm, and in my mind, because I have a mind that is a gold mind, but in the same time, a fucking nightmare that goes all the way, everywhere, all the time, that has no off. Yeah. You probably know oh, about yeah, that. Oh, yeah, I know you. Um, and, and, uh, something happens in my mind that I like I can't visualize and see what my life is going to be if I stay in this. Yeah. And it's not that it's bad. It's just that like I see things very vividly. I can feel things and it's almost, it's going to sound weird, but it's almost like in my mind, I can visualize and live my life as if I'm staying doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, well, fuck that. Then I'm, I want to do something else then. Cause I can, I can, it's almost like I've lived that life already. You know it's what I gonna, mean? It's going to end. The life's going to end. Like, yeah. Why and would then, you pin, pin it down to one thing? Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know. And then I'm like, ah, oh. and oh, there's that that thing. And then, ah, let's, let's do this. And then I'll do this. And then same thing. At some point, something happens. Because I could still be, I could still be in France at my first job. There is amazing. Like, I, I loved uh, my first career in sound engineering and, and managing events and like all that thing that was fucking exciting. That was great. Uh, I could still be, I, I have in my mind, like this, this parallel universes where, where my life is different, you know, Your trees and I have one where I was, still I'm still yeah. there, you know, and I'm still doing this. It's great. And then, but then you're feeling the call for something. It's just me. I, I I'm, I let my life, um, I, I let life, um, no, I, I, I'm driven by curiosity. Like I, I'll remain like a student of you know mm-hmm. my curiosity. Yeah, and uh, and this is how it's been going so far. But with this, uh, again, like I understand that I'll never be um, an expert at anything. But we don't need only expert at things. We also the world also need people that can. Uh, connect the dot on few different things because at the end I'll have a, a bunch of knowledge on a lot of different things and that's going to create a unique blend of something you yeah. know which is already the case yeah. um, but to answer the to get back to the thing of, of why I, I guess at some point and this is going to sound but like CrossFit or not CrossFit or any type of, of thing even though CrossFit is extremely varied and stuff like that at some point and I mean, it's my case, but at some point, it re- it comes back to be the the same. 
at some point you're going to coach again the ring muscle up or the pull up and things and you can yes you can always find variation there's always other things to do there's always new warm up and stuff but at some point That's you will you... bump back into the, the the same thing which is not which is normal because there's not a million way to fucking squat like there's one way there's one right way to squat so it, you can go over and like do all kind of things at some point uh you're going to do uh kind of the same thing and this is how how do you handle doing the same thing over and over and over and i know that myself i can handle it at some but at some point i'm gonna lose interest and so it's not all and so people will will be able to do the same fucking thing day in and day out and and this is great because we need that too and there's some people like me or others that can't i i i My mom just recently had like uh, something of 30 years of career, the same thing. Like that's an example. Like some people will do the same thing, but then at some point when it gets and I feel and it gets again the same thing, I'm start of, it's kind of like, it's the feeling, it's kind of like you feel like you've brought kind of everything you could in that and it's going to be the same thing, but you can't, you're limited, you can't bring more And then you have that pull and that call that you you are meant to then doing something else and, and doing doing more. You've kind of like, okay, I've seen it, I feel it, I kind of see where this is gonna lead me. That's cool, but but uh, fuck, like I can't, uh, you know, I can't help but then looking on the other side. Oh, that's that's pretty cool too. Let's fucking try it. You know, it's just I don't know. I feel like life is too short to. If unless you have like an extremely pull and this is your passion and you don't visualize yourself doing anything else, that, that that's legit. Like that makes sense to not change. But if I'm gonna feel like ah, uh, at some point I'm not, I don't have like that that fire enough. I'm like almost wasting myself. It seems like what you're from my point of view, anyways. It seems like what you're describing is hitting that boundary of generalist to specialist. Yeah. Like when you're talking about it, you're going like, eventually you're going to coach the ring muscle up again. Like, yeah. And it's like where you cross the generalist to specialist boundaries, you will always search. For, if you're going to specialize, you're going to always search for different ways to make that muscle up more efficient or better or a new way to coach it or some different cue that's going to register with a different type of person. And like as a generalist, like you get there and you're like four or five times of it and you find a new way each time, but it's still the same cookie cutter. You're still, the person's going to start hanging from underneath the rings and they're going to finish at the top of a dip in the rings, like in that hold position. Yeah. You could go many paths to get there. You could coach many paths to get there. But at the end of the day, as a generalist, you look at it and you're like, you start here, you finish here. You do that for five years and you're like, okay what's next yeah yeah and yet some people won't won't be what's next because they're there's they're still satisfied and find still the the, the interest into this little little tricking yeah. but that's really like generally specialist I, i guess like that's really related how are you you know interested and still driven by changing that little detail or or do you want to stay in your comfort zone i think that's a big thing too get comfy somewhere yeah but then fuck and then if everybody 
is like me the world is fucked because you can't change your career every like five years if everybody do this like we're world fucked you my i used to work in a bakery when i was going through high school and i remember my my manager um shelly she's hilarious i loved her um she's she said to me one day she said you know alex not everybody can be managers mm -hmm. there needs to be people to do the work True. like that stuck with me until this point because it's like you think about it what what goals go out there when you start in the workforce so i'm gonna start like just if you think about your average distribution and kind of industry in terms of like sales and stuff like that like i'm gonna start in the warehouse packing and shipping boxes and then i'm gonna go to customer service answering phone calls and helping people out then i might go to like inside sales or counter sales where i get to slightly more responsibilities and then outside sales. And then once you're in outside sales, it's like you might go into management or you might stay outside sales, right? It's like, but there has to be people all along those branches that do the work so that the whole process gets there, right? Yeah. Not everybody gets to be a manager, yeah. right? And, and some people are good at managing and some people aren't. Oh yeah. I think the tough part, like you, it becomes very evident to people when somebody who's not fit to manage gets into a management role, yeah. right? And, yeah. and at the same scale, it's pretty evident when somebody who's fit to manage is in a not management job, like they either stick out like a sore thumb or they excel because they know what it takes to get past that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess the bottom line is really listening to yourself because we're all different, but no one will tell you, yeah, it's okay to change a uh, job often. It's more the, the, the music. It's more like find uh, what you want to do and get your job and then stay, stay there. Um, but it never made that much sense to me because today we're, when you work full time, it takes up, a lot of time so much time that it, it, it is pretty much um most of your awake uh awake wake hours moment. the prime time of your waking hours so if you if it doesn't make sense if it's just for the money like your your it's absolutely insane it's mind-blowing to me i understand like the pressure and everything and like the, ec the economical stress that everybody have and, and stuff like this but um i just can't comprehend it like i'll do fucking anything anything uh to do something that interests me like it doesn't uh, it's not worth it to me to do work something that doesn't really drive you yeah like, like it's, fuck this. it's like we were talking about after the cold blend right we have the cold plunge and it's the sensation that you perceive as bad and you're mm -hmm. like get me out of here and then the thought that always comes to my mind is like hey guess what like someday you're going to be dead and void of all feeling mm. <laughs> yeah. right and then all of a sudden the sensory that was bad now you're just grateful to feel it because you can mm -hmm. feel it because you can you can perceive a world well it's going to happen you perceive a time when you're not going to feel anything. Yeah. The thing that's like crazy to me is that I've watched, I've watched quite a few people die. Um, 
I've also uh, like a few of them have been very close family members and it's always the same. They get to that end stage of life and you see them go through it where they're like, they all, all three of them have said the same thing. Like, Hey, do what you want to do because if you get to this stage and you have regrets, it sucks looking back at all that time mm-hmm. and knowing you didn't do something and now you regret it because you can't do it. Clocks run out. And that transitions to like all three of my family members that have, have, have watched pass away, like literally being in the movements, the room that mm. you, boom, pronounce them dead. Within some point in time of when they pass away, they it's flips and they go, yeah, I'm done. Like I'm ready. I'm ready to give up. Like I, whatever the sensation is at that point in time or however tired they are, whatever they feel like they're ready, they're ready to go. And so man, what driving principles for life is like, Hey, don't regret anything. Yeah. Right. Like don't, don't spend 20 years doing the same thing. If you have this inkling in the back of your heart, like I want to try that. Mm. And like the, I want to try that's, the only time people talk about is when the, I want to try that is like big or crazy. I want to become a pilot. Like that's a pretty big thing to do. I want to fly a plane. That's a pretty big thing to do. It could be as simple as like, Hey, I like never knit in my life. I want to try knitting. Mm-hmm. Like don't get to mm-hmm. that stage where you're, you're about to be void of all sensory information and you never tried knitting. Yeah. Freaking try knitting, you know, try something, decide, Hey, I'm done being a sound engineer and I'm going to, be a CrossFit coach. I'm done being a CrossFit coach. I'm going to start producing my own content. Like, yeah, I'm done being a CrossFit coach. I'm going to go be a firefighter. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. if you want to do something, do it. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, if you want to do something, do it. Yeah. yeah. If you want to do something, do it. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's my cheat for CrossFit too, is I'll get to the end of a workout and I'll be like dying. And that, those thoughts in your head of quitting, of not doing any more come in. And the thing that always kicks me right in the butt is like, Hey, someday you're going to be dead and void mm. of all feeling. And then it's like, man, all the suffering, everything that sucks, just give it to me. Like, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think people now are, I say now, maybe just in general, do you think people are, people believe that there's not supposed to be suffering in life when you don't see the benefit of uh suffering because i mean we get used to anything right so like if you don't if you don't suffer you won't like to suffer but if you suffer knowing that suffering is the way to actually get what you want um then it will make sense and then it's not going to be as painful because it's always why are you suffering is always a big uh is always a big uh component right because suffering for no reason um yeah it sucks but suffering knowing that this gets you better knowing that this is for your health knowing that this will bring you anything uh, you want um maybe suffering's like a pretty serious word i guess it'd be discomfort like i yeah. find that a lot of people don't want to be 
don't want to experience discomfort when it comes to like the housing market and stuff like that. Like even the, the new stuff that's going on with short term rentals right now, right. Where they, they painted with a broom and it's just, they basically said, Hey, you can't do that anymore. And a lot of people are doing things pretty legitimately mm-hmm. are experiencing things right now. Like their income is going to go down cause they can't do what they were doing to make it before. And it's like a lot of people are, are saying, well, you know what? I'm never going to be able to buy. Like it's, it's terrible. Those are so much more expensive. Cost of living is so much more expensive. And you're like, yeah, but there's places pretty close or, or even a little farther away that you could live a good life. You just wouldn't be here. Like the comfort mm-hmm. of being here is so important to you. You don't want to move somewhere else where you could live the kind of life you want to live. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem is like we, we are rigged that way, right? Like we get into something and then we're just rigged to stay in the, in the comfort uh, to not move and to not, you know, get outside of this. We're, yeah. we're like rigged, rigged this way. So you gotta, you just gotta want, I love the, the death the dying thing because it's to me, it's the base of everything. And it, it governs uh, uh, today a lot of things um, that I do and how I think. And it's like, it's like you know, what you were saying is, it's like, I'm going to die. Like, and, you know, we don't even know when, but you say, even you say just like, not even, I don't know, maybe a hundred years, less than a hundred years. Like everyone we know right now, you take, let's take a hundred years. You and me, everyone we know will be dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? And nothing will really <laughs> matter anymore, I guess, because we don't really. But um, it's just like let it govern like your, your, your choice of, oh, I can't. No, we can't move because, you know, we have our whole life here. Like it, it's, it's linked with this concept that I love of be connected and not attached. Like if you can, one of the superpower today uh a good one that you can have is like learn to let go and not be attached to thing but connect like it's like a plug when you the difference would be i, I plug something and then i put like bunch of fucking uh how do you call that um scotch and and gaff taper you, and, you and like all that you stuff fasten it to the wall so you yeah. can't ever unplug it but then when you're gonna unplug you're gonna make damage to it mm-hmm um and it's it's just like weird analogy but if you can if you can in anything that you do your career relationship anything if you can really keep deep in your mind that everything is temporary that no it, it won't last like all that fucking masquerading thing where where you're like this is my life this is my relationship this is my work this is nothing will will last will last and everything will be it, it will life will take away everything from you so if you can learn to just connect into this thing oh this is what i have today i'm fucking grateful for it i love it but you know in the back of your head and you're ready to let go at any moment because this is life rather than like grip to things like this and just like no i will never let go um I think it's it's good because it makes you it, it create it makes the the experience more intense and you have more gratitude to toward the things and you know it's like 
I'm connected to this. I know in the back of my head it will it will end at some point and I will embrace the end because that's part of it. Rather than not think like never don't face death at all. Like never think about it. Like keep it in taboo. Like it's 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 a little bit of a of a taboo thing, you know, like it's it's an important thing that should be think about every day. Yeah. And there's the um, it's one of my favorite quote. Uh, Marcus Aurelius when you arise in the morning think about what a privilege it is to be alive to think to enjoy and to love like it's the base of of everything like every day if you can just connect a little bit with that we're gonna fucking die so quit that job that you don't like he's a uh, true a skeptic right he's a yeah. true skeptic yeah the stoic 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 yeah. there we go yeah yeah I love stoic is different but it's yeah man I mean you think like there's that whole being surprised about death like that like thinking about it and it's scaring you there's times man where i'm like i'm on the verge of sleep like i'm so far close to sleep i wouldn't even know i was thinking at the time and then that thought will creep in my head for whatever reason boom adrenaline drops i'm up like i'm like i'm freaked out hmm. and usually i find when i have those thoughts or those feelings there's there's a stone left unturned there's something I have to do. There's something I'm not feeling comfortable with in my current life that I either need to change or I need to work on or have done or needs to happen. Like I'm in, when I have those thoughts about death and they give me like almost a panic attack, I'm mm. like, yeah, okay. Like let's, let's start pulling back the curtains. What's not right in life. What's going on? Yeah. Who, who am I treating shitty? You know, like, who did I do dirty or, or what did I do dirty or what did I not do well? Where, where is that room to grow? Because as soon as I start feeling that, I know that it's there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the ultimate, uh, it's the ultimate reality I've had it. Cause, um, for some people they'll call reality, you have to work and win money. It's all reality to me. That's, that's the fucking system. The reality is this. I exist right now and I'm going to die. That is the re that is the reality we're living. Not, I need, like, yeah, money is something that make, make us work. Uh, there's a system. We're in the Western world, so we're under capitalism and there's, but this is a system. It's not reality. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I, when I was saying like my mind is, um, is a curious place. Um, I've had sometimes like this contemplating the idea of, of dying. Uh, not from a, not suicidal at all. Uh, but my, my mind sometimes, I don't associate, I don't identify with my thoughts. But it happened in my life where I would have the thought coming up of and then some kind of intrusing sort of like what it would be like to die right now, mm -hmm. you know, and then uh, like the machine keeps rolling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, if you were to die right now, I'd exist past you. I'd sell my old thoughts. This house would still exist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And you start to like you start to think about those things and you can go down a rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Think about all your stuff. Like people will, people will wear 
some other people will wear your stuff. Some other people live here. Or the thing is people will use that. Your car will be used by other people. Like, But none of it will matter to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it yeah. can't matter to you. I mean, I guess you get into the whole thing about um, kind of religion and beliefs about the afterlife and stuff like that. Yeah. Which is a whole, like you open the door, like you're talking about parallel universes. Like, I guess we've been discussing from this perspective of like when it's done it's done <laughs> yeah. and for a lot of other people like there's no it's not done when it's done you start over again somewhere else in thailand right and it's like yeah it's it's a really you start to think about what that changes what mm. happens to you when you when when the electronic signals in your brain stop firing mm -hmm. yeah well there's a lot of uh, w one thing that is certain is I mean right now if you listen to the people that the expert that are um, researching and studying the the nature of our reality and uh, quantum physics and all that stuff um, there's definitely things that are absolutely mind blowing from just like the fact that physicality is a, is a is an illusion by example. Mm -hmm. Um, that we're all made of atoms. Atoms are 99% uh, empty. That when we, we touch things, it's the electrons around uh, the nucleus that are repulsing the, the electrons out of like another object. Um, so we never, touches, we never touch anything. This is repulsion of fucking electrons in my, in my, my fingers. Um, it, it's these guys like they're they're describing the what we see as um, a subjective reality and we we are seeing things how they're interpreted by our brains right but the actual thing beyond our perception is is not like that and the most mind-blowing to me is that right now what you are seeing right now i don't see the same thing what you are seeing it's an image that is made mm -hmm. in the back of your brain. But both of us are looking at this bottle. Yeah. But we're both rendering by, uh, with our brain a different image in our brain. So we're not seeing the same thing. And this, like you can go to rabbit hole with a lot of these things, but all that to say that... Um, like physicality is made of energy and the physical death. And as all energy, energy transforms, it, 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 it consumes and change into something. It doesn't never disappear. So what happens, we don't really know. But now you hear a lot of things that like human consciousness is not created by the brain, but it creates the brain, which implies a lot of like beliefs and all other things. But um, it, it, it's... Like I'm, I believe that uh, there's something happening uh, after physical death. It's it, to to me, it's not. Ab to me, it's it's uh, for sure. Like I don't believe uh, death is blackout, the end of of everything. And mm -hmm. like, and even if it is, like where you, you lose consciousness or whatever, it's it's. I mean, even if it's this, you're not even aware it's like where were you before you were born how, like how where, you know, how, what kind of how do you, do you know you're asleep when you're asleep 
Yeah, exactly. Right? When you're asleep, how do you know you're asleep? It's like dreams. You wake up in the morning. That's how you know you're asleep. Yeah. It's, yeah. The the whole, like, the consciousness thing is, like, I've always had this thought experiment of this reality exists in my mind because that's how I perceive it. Yeah. Like, what if in whatever real side of things, like, I'm somebody who's, like, sitting in a chair, just not not even privy to society or anything that's going on and this whole reality exists only in my head you know like you don't have your own thoughts yeah but Mm -hmm. i have a thought that you exist and that you think a certain way and so like it conveys to me that you're your own person but maybe it's all made like it comes into this whole crazy like we're all living in the matrix kind of thing where it's like oh 100 this is real for me but it's not yeah you know what if you're the only one? What about that thought also? Like the, what if you were the only one, the only real human conscious? What if it's not one consciousness that creates like everything and you're, you're a, a non, <laughs> an, an NPC? An NPC. Yeah, the whole world's and, NPCs. The whole world's NPC. Can, can you believe like you spend your whole life like scared and all that shit and then you die and then suddenly you get somewhere and well, you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was all a game and uh none of these people existed you you were in your own uh world oh, and you, you did the thing so okay let's do it again and do it better this time and you're gonna be somebody else and yeah um, but yeah no it's it's uh it's interesting uh but there's definitely fuck man there's there's definitely some crazy some crazy things behind the scene that we can't even see like we the the simple fact that we can't see shit, right? Like the human eyes, they can't see shit compared to what's available, what actually exists. Um, you know, it, it already tells that you know there there's some there's some stuff, and it's like all the alien alien stuff going on. Um, uh, lately, it's been like crazy amount of things, but it, you, we have to understand that other forms of, of life can be probably very different. It's not even going to be like a physical thing. What if I ha- I've had that thought, like what if there's other living being that um, their baseline uh, operation are like way faster than the speed of light. They would be all around you doing things that you couldn't even perceive. Uh, like that, that type of thing, like where everybody's like expecting like a fucking... Uh, saucer just like coming and then people going like you it's it can be so many things that our brain can't even comprehend um it's interesting what i like all about all this is like understanding that we don't know anything we don't know shit like and even if even the people that know a lot and all about like the universe and things like we don't even know what was before we don't even know really what created like we don't know anything and this gives me a lot of, uh, I like the fact, I like to qualify myself as like completely fucking ignorant passenger that is just here. And that's fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, kind of. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know what you mean, but. I know it's, it's, my, it's, it's my, I'm still working on my English. No, no, it's, you know what it is? It's just different, like, it's different thought experiments, right? Like, your yeah. your brain comes up with different things than my brain comes up with, yeah. right? And you spend more time on certain things than I spend 
time on certain things. No, and for sure. It's, you know, it's like a lot of the, I think I've had a lot of similar thoughts to the thoughts that you've had. Mm-hmm. Right. And you've had a lot of similar thoughts that, that I've had because we're discussing about it. It's like, yeah, I can kind of get on mm-hmm. board with that. Like, I understand that the depth at which people think about is pretty crazy. Like to think about the fact that there's people in Vernon, in the interior in BC, probably quite a few who have never thought about what it would feel like to die. Mm. Or right? never think about, yeah, never like think they, about it. It wouldn't yeah. cross their mind because it's not how their brain works. It's not what they're interested in. It's not their focus. Mm. It's not their, they're not analytical like that. It doesn't matter to them for whatever reason. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you're like, well, what burdens their mind instead? What fills that space in their head instead? What are they focusing on? Maybe it gives them the space to specialize, right? Like maybe it gives <laughs> them the space. These are the specialists. <laughs> right? Like maybe it gives them the space to specialize. Like, yeah. man, you got to think about. Oh, no, yeah. I see what you mean. You got to yeah, think yeah, about yeah. somebody like Brent Fakowski. <laughs> like that guy thinks yeah. every little ounce. Like yeah. he probably knows where his pinky goes on his rings when he does ring mm. muscle-ups. Yeah. What does he not think about? Because he's too too specialized into that. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, correlation, right? Like yeah. I could say, like, "Hey, you understand?" You'd be like, "Yeah," but no. Yeah. Like I understand, but I've never had that that yeah. thought before. Yeah, that's what makes this world interesting, right? Because we all have like different ways of of thinking and stuff. One thing that blew my mind is it was I think. Was it end of last year? Like a study that got out, it was saying uh, that only 30%, it was 30 to 50% of people have an, an internal dialogue. Uh, I mean, like they have conversations in their head with themselves? Yeah, like you can, you can, you have that capacity, you have that consciousness that you can like talk with yourself or and have like an inner voice that is telling you things. And like, and I have an insane internal dialogue. Like, yeah, like, and the 70% of people that don't have that hit me up because if you can tell this guy in here to shut I'll, up, like, please, <laughs> you know? Like, no, but, like, yeah, I was, like, it, I was, like, mind blown because, yeah, it's it's insane then how different we can be. And also then there's different type of people that can more visualize or not. There are people, like, if I tell you to close your eyes and think about uh, an apple, uh, you take 10%, someone is not going to be able to see it. Someone's going to be able to see it really well in 3D. Someone's going to see some kind of weird image like we're really all different in what's happening in here there's something that i wasn't aware at all and when i am curious to know like how it'd be like to not have an inner dialogue i'll be like what the fuck like it would give me some some early days from my own fucking thoughts but i uh i coached a guy once where i tell him to close his eyes i'd put his hand behind his back and I'd pull out fingers, right? So it's like, if this was behind my back, I would put down these fingers. And I'd say, how many fingers are you holding up? And because he could not see it, oh, he, he could not tell me. That's crazy. And I had to coach this guy how to squat, mm. how to lift. Like he, wa- he wanted to <laughs> learn how to do a lunge. Yeah. And like this is like, we talk about that internal dialogue. That's a very, um, like, a very mental thing like it's in your head right you think about <laughs> yeah. physical awareness like some people just like they don't have the internal dialogue 
man, they don't know where their body is in space mm. or time. Yeah. Which is crazy because one of these guys walks to the gym and he wants to learn how to do things. And like, I'll give that guy credit, man. That guy was resilient. Mm. He did not stop coming. He always worked on it. Like, it's got to be hard for somebody to be like, hey, you know, push your knee to the wall in front of you. And Buddy's like, where's my knee? (laughs) You know? Like, look down and be like, okay, knee, wall, push. Like, that's the the cognition that he would have had to have, right? It's the interior Mm. dialogue when, I guess if somebody didn't have one, he'd say, like, when you make a decision to buy something at the grocery store, where does that decision come from if you don't have, like, two sides of your brain saying, like, yeah, "Yeah, we want to buy the melon, the other side being like, yeah, but the last time you bought a melon, it went bad in the fridge. You know? Yeah. Man. It's, it's like, limit, like, schizophrenia. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, no, but, like, um, it's exactly the same. And, like, you have two voices, and one voice of the, that tells you, let's go, let's do this. And then the other is, like, <sighs> it's, like, the angel and the demon on your, yep. do it, no. <laughs> yeah, don't, it's true, man, but. Yeah. It's, um, does it, do, do, do you have like trouble? Uh, so, uh, sometimes it, it, tr- it prevents me to sleep. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I go to bed and there's going to be hours of my mind wandering on some things. It start on one thing. That one thing brings me to a memory 15 years ago. Then it makes me think about a person I was in this memory and then that person makes me think about something and I can go on that for hours. I have it like, that's usually how I fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And then I usually have a thought of like, Oh, am I going <laughs> to remember this thought tomorrow morning? Mm-hmm. And usually if I go, Oh, I'm going to remember this thought tomorrow morning. Like I'm not quite ready to sleep yet, mm-hmm. but I know there's times where I'll say like, Oh, I'm not going to, am I going to remember this tomorrow morning? And like, I don't remember it in the morning. Um, have it a little bit different. I usually get, like embarrassing memories mm. they'll come back and they'll like for whatever reason whatever trigger happens something will make me think of something i'll be like oh god nine-year-old alex like that was really embarrassing mm. you know and those will kind of like smack me up the side of the head um for the most part it's when i start to like make those mental maps of thinking about things that are that are transferring like that they happen pretty natural and that's i'd say that's where i lose my internal dialogue where it happens to be like naturally thinking about thing to thing to thing where I'm not thinking like, Hey Alex, you should really go and do this because this happens. And remember we agreed this morning when you woke up that as soon as you got home from work, you're going to get ready for the next day. Cause it's just, you have a kid and it's easier when your wife's home to get ready for the next day. Cause she can run interference for you instead of like getting until 7 PM at night when like the kids got to be put to bed and you're like, Oh man, but I also haven't, pack my lunch yet or I haven't got my clothes ready. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like, that's what I would say. My internal dialogue is a lot of like that kind of stuff at night. I find it very peaceful to just think about things that think into other things that think into other things. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it puts me right to sleep. Sometimes it's like, like last night I'm ready to go to bed. It's 10 o'clock finished a bunch of work and and I'm getting up early for the gym in the morning and I'm like right about to fall asleep and I go, Hey, you didn't check on your kid. Like you didn't, I always go in right before I'm about to go to sleep and I, you know, feel the back of his neck to make sure he's a decent temperature and it's not mm. too cold in there. And 
you know, there's no stuffies around his face or stuff like that. And like I'm right about to fall asleep. And then it's like, boom, mm. Hey, you didn't check on the kid. And it's like, cool. Let's get up. Let's check on the kid. Yeah. yeah. But I'd say never haven't had it like thought, thought mapping so hard that I haven't been able to fall asleep. Hmm. Yeah. I don't believe it's just you though. No, it's no, no. We're probably a bench, but we're like we've talked about that thirty and that seventy percent of people with different dialogues. Yeah, I'm whatever percentage of people that doesn't have that. <laughs> You're whatever percentage of people that do have that. Yeah, and together we're like we're still in that thirty percent <laughs> category that has an internal monologue. No, for sure. Some people can fall asleep. Like Jenna falls asleep in fucking three minutes, and sometimes I can just go on for for hours. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, how do how um. Uh, how old is, is Grant now? Two years? Three years? Yeah, Grant was born um, in 2022, yeah, 2023, 2024, yeah, 2022. So, so he's just about two years old. It's crazy to think about it because for me, he's still a six-month-old baby, but he's mm. not. He's a one-year-old, but he's not. He's actually almost two, Yeah. right? Um, and then we get into this whole thoughts about freaking counting in months right like oh, i guess yeah. technically he'd be 22 months old because we do months up to 24 months old which yeah. is two years but i just say he's a two-year-old yeah he's two years old his birthday's in january he's, he's yeah. gonna be two pretty soon so what is the being a new parent what is the what are the things that no one or nothing could prepare yourself to handle all the cliches are true in a good and and bad oh yeah all the all the cliches like everything you heard as a kid that they say like you'd be (laughs) like mom i love you and mom would go like yeah you love me but like not as much as i love you and you're like yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah like you know or or you know you say you get married to your wife and you say if if it happens this way you say like i love you more than anything and then you have a baby and you're like i love you (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> but like, this yeah. this thing comes first mm-hmm. always ever mm-hmm. i've never loved anything so much and mm-hmm. it's so true interesting all that bullshit about like sleep now while you can yeah that's true too <laughs> you know when they yeah. say it's funny it's like man i'll never forget it the amount of people that said sleep when they sleep mm. and i said yeah 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 yeah, yeah. we sleep we go in for lisa's sleep. c-section at five o'clock in the morning on a thursday and we're excited. We were up the night before. I stop at Starbucks, grab a coffee. We go into the hospital. You know, she's huge. She's uncomfortable. She's, she's borne the weight of this child for nine months. Like, it's ready to come out. And uh, it comes out, and it's the most exciting time of my life. Because I'm so excited, I don't want to sleep. Like, this kid comes out, and he's exhausted. Because at that moment, that's the most exhausting thing he's ever done. He was born. Like, that's in his nine months of lifetime, that is the most exhausting thing he's ever done. What does he do? He comes out, he cries, boom, goes to bed. Mm-hmm. What do I do? I look at him and I cuddle him <laughs> and I hold him and I take pictures. <laughs> I make sure mom's okay. And yeah. mom's awake too. Cause she just came out of surgery and just had freezing up to her freaking neck. And like, you know, C-sections are violent by the way, but we'll go mm-hmm. over that at another point in time. I was like, yeah. C-sections could be, cut her open pull it out and it's like no i was standing by my wife's head as they're like the whole table's jostling around and i'm like hey what what are you guys doing down there and they're like this is normal 
like the f- this is normal. It is normal. Shit. Yeah. But um, yeah, we get to about. So Grant was born probably around eight forty in the morning, and then we're noon. I'm still up. I'm still excited. He wakes up for his first time. Wants to feed. Needs a change. Whatever. It doesn't really need a change. But when you're a parent and he's that young, you don't know what to do, so you change your kid and put him back to bed. He sleeps. Six o'clock comes and you start to get a little fatigued and you're thinking okay we'll wrap it down for bed nine o'clock comes you're exhausted you just had the the most exhausting day of your life you're so excited you want to sleep lisa's recovering from surgery she wants to sleep and this kid wakes up (laughs) and he's awake (laughs) he wants to be held he wants to be moved he wants to be cuddled he wants food and you're like shit I didn't sleep all last night because I was excited. I didn't sleep all day while you were sleeping because I'm an idiot. Now you're here and I want to go to sleep and you're awake. So it's like the number one cliche, if I could say anything, is sleep when they sleep. Even if this thing just came to life and you want to party, try and sleep. That's the, I think that's the number one thing I wasn't prepared for. I'd say mm-hmm. the, the number two thing I wasn't prepared for would be the sheer worry of like every little thing Mm. are they too hot are they too cold are they getting sick you know did i not sanitize this bottle well enough am i going to be the reason they get ill you know and and (laughs) it's gonna be my fault yeah it's gonna it's not only gonna be my fault but it could it have been preventable Mm. could i have done something better you know um and you just don't know because you don't get you're we're so used to getting feedback Right? You go to work, you get feedback. You talk with somebody, you get feedback. This little potato Doesn't, yeah. of a human has one feedback mode, which is crying. Mm-hmm. Right, And when you're like a new parent and you haven't spent a lot of time around kids, you're like, that cry, is it? Is it hungry? Is it I need a change? Is it I have gas? Is it I'm uncomfortable? Is it I want attention? Am, am, is it like purple cry? Like, is it just crying to cry? Because mm. that's like a real thing. And you're like, you don't know. Yeah. You just Yeah. You just try everything. You You just Yeah, you, you spend you spend the first six months in a fog. Mm. You spend the first six months and like you start that six months and it's like it's like a cold plunge. You start and you're like, holy shit. Then you come out of the water at six months and you're like, okay kind of get back to reality right and i think it's i think it's difficult different for 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 women than it is for men like you know i would say my wife's primary job was was the baby that was the only thing she had to worry about right and it's like and that's the only thing i'd want her to worry about but in our family there is there is me as well right and so like there'd be times where like I wouldn't be having a great day for whatever reason. Right. But it's, you're so used to having your wife there and able to think about you and stuff like that. And now you don't get that kind of support because it all goes towards the baby. Mm-hmm. And so you pick up trying to support your wife and support a child. And now you have to like do all your own shit for mm-hmm. yourself. Like probably physically and mentally. Cause like Lisa holds the house down. Like she's mm-hmm. got the house on Pat. Like, um, yeah, it sounds really whingy to say it that way. I feel like a little bitch, but 
No, no, no. I, mean, I think it, I, it, it, it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense. I think it's, you know, those those first six months, you're like, the other thing too is we were really fortunate that like Lisa didn't get any kind of postpartum depression. Mm. Um, and I can only imagine how tough it is if you would. Yeah. Yeah. But just the challenge that it brings, because like it, it changes the... I'm t- I'm talking about assumption because obviously I'm not a parent, but it changes the dynamic of the couple right away. You have uh, a third elements that brings down a lot of uh, mixed emotions. It's probably a roller coaster, coaster, and the and the relationship is uh, is challenged for sure. I felt like there's a good amount of people who are once they've had the kids, like they're they're separating it's tough like it's tough to hear and this is it hit me like a slap in the face the first time where we're like we're talking about something and saving things from like a burning building and like lisa looked at me and she's like hey we're in a burning building like you're on your own like if you couldn't move i'm still grabbing the kid and getting out of here like Mm -hmm. you can you just figure it out like this is a person that you love with your whole heart and to hear them say that you're like oh god (laughs) but then at the same time you flip the scenarios and you're like I'm sorry, but I do the same. Mm. And then I think there's people who come to terms with that and they're like, they love each other more because of it. Mm. I think there's people who maybe can never really get over the fact that there's that new, new place in their, their significant other's hearts. Yeah. Deep, deep down. That might be a very shallow way to look at it or, or super official, but mm. you're right. It does, it does change people. You see them before they have a kid and then after they have a kid and they're either like they're either the same with a baby or they're like completely different. Mm. I don't think there's any indicators really of whether or not they're going to make it or not. But man, it sure changes. It changes the relationship. Mm. Something that resonated really true with me was um, somebody told me, you're never going to be ready to have kids. Mm. You might have a house and you might make a nursery and you might make plenty of money and you can financially afford it and you can time-wise afford it and you have the space, but you're never going to be ready to have those responsibilities. And I, I feel like that's true. So like you're saying is it, then it becomes your ability to handle or, or your ability to problem solve and think in stressful situations and come up with solutions and stuff like that. And there's, people who thrive in that and there's people who don't do well in that and i mean in in my relationship with lisa it's you know i grew up probably from nine years nine years old onwards in um, a relatively stressful kind of high conflict family situation and when things get stressful i get dialed Mm. like shit's getting done if it's going to be stressful i'm on you know and for lisa it's like when she gets stressful like it's not good Mm. we get less productive you know and so you have those two types of people where it's like you could have a a couple that has it all sorted out and is ready to go and then you throw in the chaoticness of having a child and it's like yeah you're less prepared to deal with this because you're not used to constantly dealing with like different problems whether it's you know, situational or, or financial or, or anything like that. So I've never thought about that. 
But you see, one of the things that happens when you have a kid is you start to make a lot of friends with people who just had kids. Mm, that's good because it's hard to make friends as adults. Yeah, and then you get to adults. see the different. Yeah, and then you get to see the different types of parents and how they parent and what they mm. do and what works for them and what doesn't work and. Yeah. Then you have a second kid, and I can only imagine. Yeah. I I love the you'll never you're never ready to have a kid. Like you'll never feel ready. Oh, it's and that's a good thing to say. I think is like, who really feel ready for it? There's never a good time. There's never yeah. an ideal time. Yeah. You know, you could be. You could say, okay, I bought a house. I have a job that allows me to do it we're in a position for it and you're like yeah okay well like you check the boxes for a lot of good foundational things like things you'd want to set up but you're never gonna be ready for like the first time your baby makes a choking noise mm. and you're like oh god this is it <laughs> you know like no matter how prepared you are how many kids classes you take the same really goes for firefighting like you're never ready for until you get to experience the real thing mm. a few times. Cause let me tell you the first, the second, the third time that kid make choking noises, like tables were flipped. Phones were in hand. <laughs> yeah. Like, I you know, the yeah. iPhone, like nine one one was there. Yeah. I just had to press the, the yeah. phone button to turn it on. Mm. And the kid spits out something and you're like, oh, and he looks at you with these dumb eyes and he's like, hey, <laughs> you like that trick? <laughs> I got a lot more for you. Oh shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, because you're, you're panicking as hell as anything. Yeah. It gets, after six months, gets a little older, starts to starts to do things that are more human-like. Yeah. I mean, Manny's two years old, and I called Lisa on the phone this morning just to talk with her about some of the, the logistics of moving. And in the background, like, Grant's, typically hasn't been saying sentences or mm -hmm. like putting words together he's just starting to get that mm -hmm. so he throws you off guard and like you hear him in the background like babble 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 where are you data and you're like sorry did you just talk to me like you <laughs> yeah. you've been talking you've been saying words yeah but he actually addressed a question to me not just like a, yeah. a question <laughs> like a directed question of like i hear you but you're not here so where the frick are you yeah interesting and it throws you through this loop and you're starting to see like now all of a sudden the software in this child's brain is like able to process the next mm -hmm. thing and process the next thing. It's, I always come back to when you raise a kid, you're, you're programming a, a child oh, yeah. in how you parent and what you do. Absolutely. And then, but the other thing too, is like they go through these crazy software updates that like, I don't know where it comes from, mm -hmm. you know, but like all of a sudden their software is updated and like they wake up and they can undo a freaking zipper. Mm, you're like yeah. hey this is new they wake up and they can string together three words mm. it's they, they receive downloads throughout the night and yeah from the the crazy aliens that yeah. run at light speed <laughs> they just yeah. some little alien pops in there plugs something into their ear and it just downloads they're like guess what yeah your baby now can do this yeah no that's interesting how it works um, it's hard not to treat them like a like a functioning human yet because mm. you see them so so human-like but they're not yeah. yet they're mm. they're still so 
infantile mm. things like things you think are are manipulative or, or mean or spiteful or things like that stuff that happens is like it just it, no, there's no intent behind it like the kid gives me the crazy straight out of the horror movie smile the other day and and then i'm like oh man maybe i've got a psychopathic kid mm. like i said something to him he's sitting over there reading book i said something to him and he just kind of looks up and he's like and I'm like, oh my gosh, this child wants to murder me. Probably doesn't. Yeah. Maybe he just finally got to experience what it felt like when he stuck his eyes so far in his eye sockets up that that was the feeling he had when he looked around. <laughs> yeah. Right. But to me, it's, I'm perceiving this malicious look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. You're like, hey, stop that. And he's like, what? Stop playing with the fact that I can roll my eyes this far in my head? Like, no way. I'm, yeah. I get to figure out how far my eyes move. Screw off, dad. Yeah. Although I don't know if he says that. It's just my <laughs> internal dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's crazy where you're at this stage where there's no morality. It's just like fully experienced. Like, uh, and it's hard like as, as adults, right? Because we don't have any memory of when we were two years old. No, but some people do. Some people do. Yeah, that must be crazy. But like... They do, but do they experience? Do they have this experience in their, and they're experiencing it with their current uh, consciousness? Because what I was gonna say, it would be crazy to now to like be able to just like experience their level of uh, consciousness mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. you have like such an empty. It's like when you have like an empty uh, hard drive, like you know, it's such a such a, a clean sponge. You haven't like absorbed old all the bullshit yet yeah but and you're completely uh, yeah what's your earliest memory probably around i want to say seven something like that just weird because like one of my earliest um it was after was it seven eight i was maybe a little older than that after someone uh died actually and i i remember lying in in bed i it was probably a little bit before 10 well i was like thinking uh i remember not being able to sleep because i was trying to picture in my mind uh the the infinity because mm -hmm. i was like okay that person is dead and uh what is it like is this like black for infinity and i remember being on my bed eyes open but it was pitch black so i would like watch into the the darkness of it and i was like so it's this forever right and like it never ends and i and i was like it was just like <laughs> my man it was like what <laughs> And, but like you didn't have enough RAM to process it. No. Right. Cause you didn't like probably when you're seven, you didn't know what senses were. So you're like, you're like, okay, so I see black, but you're probably like, now, you know, you're like, well, I probably wouldn't be able to hear either. I probably wouldn't be able to feel either. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have cognition either. But when you're seven, all you like, you're most of your processing, you're like, see, I can see things. So yeah. I'm just going to see black. That's that's So you do, when you think about that and you're seven years old, you're remembering it now how your cognition was back then, which was you were thinking, mm. I could be grossly mistaken, but you're thinking about what you felt about 
infinity back then which was it's just going to be seeing black forever forever yeah not taking into account you could probably hear a little bit of your like the the clothes rattling or the you know the the sheets rubbing as you breathe and stuff like that mm-hmm. yeah it's crazy it is yeah it's um but it's funny probably in your in your position right now you can probably see how much influence like uh this early moment of education we will have an impact so like when you think about it the impact because as humans like we're going to interact and we're going to have an impact in this world uh, upon like many situations and people so like right now you are doing the education for a little human and and you you're transmitting core values and things or all the things where whatever you're you're doing to this person is gonna it's gonna echo and it's gonna like have repercussions on other things and other people so like the the the, the responsibility it is actually insane when you think about it they pick up the good they pick up the bad yeah like everything in between and you're right like if you want to I think the amount of resources it takes to like try and make a nice, not even nice, to try and make a, a decent human being. <laughs> yeah. like and that's word. just that's just what factors you influence because they're going to be their own person at a certain point. Yeah. You know, and you oh, think yeah. about it and you're like, how do I make this person decent? How do I give them values that are good? And what is good? Is mm-hmm. good what I value is good or is good what society values is good? And you know they pick up on so much stuff and and without the meaning behind it right like man i i my wife's amazing i ask her to do a lot of stuff right and and she does a lot of stuff and like sometimes i ask her to do too much mm-hmm. and she rolls her eyes at me but the kid sees that mm-hmm. and the kid starts to roll his eyes because he thinks it's funny <laughs> really? but he doesn't have any yeah. meaning behind yeah. it it's not like he's like yeah, dad you're asking me to do too much he just rolls his eyes and then yeah. you start to think in your mind you're like oh, maybe we shouldn't roll our eyes mm. because he's going to pick up rolling his eyes and then somewhere down the road he's going to get a software update where he understands that when somebody asks you to do something you don't want to do or you're fed up because mm. they ask too much from you or something like that you roll your eyes of response typically that's a somewhat disrespectful response right Mm-hmm. regardless of if what people are asking of you is legitimate. Like a lot of the times I ask Lisa for the world, she rolls her eyes at me and I deserve every second of it. Mm-hmm. But I still am like, Hey, don't do that. <laughs> don't be like that with me. You yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. But the kiddo picks up on it. Yeah. He like sees, he do he something does. as simple as that. He was like, this kid is flexible. Let's mm-hmm. see. Babies are made out of rubber. He's flexible. I'm sure he doesn't have an aching bone in his body at this moment. And he goes to sit down and he sits down today and he goes, Ugh. I'm like, where did you pick that up? And then like 45 minutes later, I go to sit down on the couch. And I go, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, that's where it came yeah. from. You know, mm-hmm. that's where it came from. So yeah. Fox programming like... a little human being is, is you can think far too hard about it. Like anything oh, yeah. you can. And, and I think the, think you kind of have to just go for like what's going to be a net positive on it mm. because if you try too hard you could really mess that up 
one of the books I read before having Grant, um, which is my son's name, was um, Mindset by Carol Dweck. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's it. Sounds right in my head, could not be right. but And uh, it just talks about a whole bunch of stuff. And like I, I thought about it. And if you read the book and if you think about it, like a lot of the principles are really good. And it's like, don't praise a child for the grades that they get praise the child for the effort that they put into getting those grades so you know it's probably not exactly what she said but that's what i would have taken out of it anyways which is like when grant does something and we clap and we say like good job like good job we're really rewarding like what he does but if i see him trying like if he comes over and he says i want to help and he grabs a spoon and he spills coffee like the coffee I made earlier today, spilled the, the ground beans all over the counter. I'm like, hey, way to, way to try and take that spoon and put it into this container because it's tough. Like, it, man, and that, they can't control their bodies. You really see like this, they don't have any motor skills and then they get a little motor skills, but no fine motor skills. Mm-hmm. Like you ask the kid to make hand signs with his fingers, like thumbs up or like rock and roll or, you know, we, we did baby sign language for a little bit because it's so, you ask them, they want more food, more food, right? And, or all, I'm all done with my food or I'm all done with whatever. And like at the beginning, they just don't know how to move. So you're like, you're trying to get them to say things like, please, please help me or something like that. They just don't even know how to move. So like sometimes the motions are all out of the place because they, like, they're trying as hard as they can to get their hands in front of their shoulders and like, supinate and pronate like they don't have the ability to control that Mm -hmm. like they don't have the controller for that yet so they get out in front and they're like (laughs) you're like yep that's all done for this kid because that's just how he knows how to move his body kids are incredible i feel like we talk about a lot of good things there's a lot of times where like where I'm exhausted as a parent. Yeah. There's times where like, you just feel like the worst parent in the world. Like, you know, I, I thought, I think daycare is like a good example of it. When we knew we were pregnant with Grant, I was like, not, I'm not doing daycare. I don't want somebody else to raise my kid. I want to raise my kid. Now that he's at the age where he'd go to daycare, he misses out on a lot of socialization because I said, like, I'm not going to get on the wait list for daycare. It's too late. I'm on plenty of wait lists now, but I'm like 300 in the queue. Mm-hmm. So big parenting tip. If you're going to have a child, even if you don't want to do daycare, get on the wait list because you can always turn it down. Pro tip. Pro, pro tip. Here, let me tell you, pro tip. Yeah. <laughs> That's my pro okay. tip. Pro tip number one. Uh, well, two, I guess, because number one is sleep when they sleep. Number, <laughs> two, they sleep. number two is enroll in daycare as soon as possible. Yeah. But, yeah, and then you, you think you're like, man, well, I'm shitty because now he's not getting the social interaction and, and, and that kind of stuff. And then it gets to the point where, like, it's Friday and he's got a lot of energy, but you had a tough week and you, and work was exceptionally tough. And maybe in your, you know, your your volunteer time with firefighting, you had some shitty calls and, like, your, your ability to, to have resources to donate to time with your child is like, it's just not there. You don't have the ability to it. That's it. Or, or it's really challenging to put up extra energy for it. And then he's like, let's go to the park, like park, 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 park. 
park but he says park <laughs> repeatedly for seven minutes and you're like like sometimes and like it it happens sometimes you turn around and you're like hey grant just like just be quiet please then he looks at you and he's like oh my god and you're like yeah. oh shit what did i do mm-hmm. right and it's like these moments where you, you just have to like you're like okay come here you know daddy didn't mean it let's go to the park mm-hmm. or we're not we're still not going to the park you know but there's moments yeah. where you feel like a shitty parent Pro tip number three, because yeah. I thought about it, <laughs> is you don't actually need as much shit as everybody says. You know? <laughs> right. Like, honestly. Closes, you mean? Man, like a good example is we bought this little, like, baby bathtub. Mm. For the first three to four months, man, you could wash that kid in the kitchen sink, and it's a heck of a lot easier on your back. Washing, and, and like, for your clothes, you don't get as wet. Washing them in the sink. Like, clean the sink out, fill it full of some warm, soapy water, wash them in there as opposed to spending 70 bucks on a plastic tub that mm-hmm. you're going to use for six months and then get rid of because it doesn't fit into it anyway and you'd rather sit up in the real bathtub right you know there's lots of things like that where you you either get sucked into buying or you're excited to buy or somebody says you should have it or it's in the top 10 list on like wiki how of like what you need to have a baby and you buy all this stuff and then you're like man i i didn't use any of that but what you use might be different for you to somebody else and stuff like that. I just found we got a lot of stuff. A lot of our friends and family gave us a lot of stuff. We bought a lot of stuff. After the first six months, we didn't use it. Or for the whole time, we never used it. We used like, man, we used our our quick connect kid seat carrier into the car. Strap the basin. You can just grab the kid in and out of the bucket. You call them yeah. bucket babies when they're that stage. They just live in the car seat. <laughs> yeah. It's perfect. Use that a lot. Um, the bassinet. Um, for the first little while, the kid slept in our arms when he was sleeping. Mm. Whether it was day or night. We tried to put him in the bassinet. He wouldn't sleep. Um, so we didn't really use that very much. Yeah, there's lots of things now where it's like, I think about it, I'm like, I oh, probably could have saved 700 bucks on not buying that. Mm. But it's going to be different. And I feel like yeah. that's one of those things where you just got to, you could tell somebody nine ways to Sunday, hey, don't do this or do this. But once they experience it, they'll know. Yeah, totally. Well, my baby came out of Lisa and she's still strapped to the table for the C-section. And that nurse came and put the kid down on Lisa's chest so they could have a quick snuggle after it was born. That kid's all slimy, slipped right up to Lisa's neck. Mm. She's laying on the table and she goes, hey, I can't breathe. You got to pick this kid up. And I'm like, I love you, but I can't. I can't. I don't know how. Mm. This is a this is a child. If I touch it, I, I don't know. I can't guarantee it because I've never done it before. It's so <laughs> yeah. terrifying to touch this <laughs> no, baby. Yeah, I, I and that. so, Lisa, I love you, but I'm going to let this kid choke you. <laughs> While you just went through probably one of the hardest experiences of your life getting a c-section birthing baby oh shit yeah and uh i had to get the nurse over like lovely nurse from vernon i think her name was courtney and i'm like uh um excuse me can you can you come help like she's like what's the problem i'm like the baby slid down onto lisa's neck and she can't breathe and i can't pick it up and she's like you can't pick it up i was like i can't pick it up and she picks the baby up she goes oh come on over here dad like Mm -hmm. let me help you okay, this is how you hold it. This is how you put a diaper on. This is what they like. This is what they don't like. Don't mm. do this, do that. And you start to, like, it starts to be not quite so scary. 
but it doesn't come easy. It, it mm. does didn't come natural. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. It's probably one of the most, probably one of the most important thing that most people will do, right? Bringing a new, another human and try to not mess it up too much so that it doesn't mess up too much of other people. Mm-hmm. But like for most of us, like that's what, I'll, so that other people can experience good things and bad things, mm-hmm. like keeping it, keeping humanity going. Yeah, it's. Uh, you think about it, you're like, there's two two people to make a baby. And if those two people only make one people, and then they expire, you have like this pyramid that shapes down. Right. To nothing. It's crazy. So it's like in order to keep the population even, two people would have to make two more people. But then more, some people have more than two. Exactly. So like right now, it sounds like with the way the population is going is more people are coming out than are going away. Hmm. I think you look at like China had that law where it was like, you're only allowed one kid for a little bit to try and control their population. Right. Yeah. The problem they have in China right now, I think is that there's too many old people, but this is the problem of all civilization, uh, even like Western civilization we're going to have is that as we technology upgrades and stuff and we, people live longer, you have, uh, you have more old people and then, not enough to not enough workers and stuff to to fund them to support and yeah. um and this definitely can be a problem but um i guess that's another <laughs> that's another topic but uh yeah yeah apparently a, a population collapse is 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 is, uh, is something that's like easy to to happen because like, we're all like oh there's too much people but if it's not, if it's like, it can happen pretty quickly that like uh, the collapse of a, of a, of a civilization or a population, uh, can it? No, I'm scared. Uh, but like you were saying, like suddenly you don't have, because now like people are way less, uh, you look at the stats, like I think like people have way less kids, like it's declining. Yeah. You don't need as many kids to help you on the farm. Kids like it's declining. So, but, I think anyway, like it's probably not good to be too many. No, I think at the same, I think humans will find a way. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we think about it. We're like the generalist of species. Yeah. We can swim, but we're not the best swimmers. We can run. We're not the best runners. We can fly. We're not the best. We're we're not the best flyers. We're not designed to fly. Right. Like we can, we can do a whole lot of things pretty good. Which is kind of weird. Like I've had that that thought, uh, you know, back. Which it's so weird the way humans are on this planet. Like you have millions of species of living things, and yet there's only one that has like an, an elevated consciousness, and that that is that has kind of like the choice of. I'll do this or I'll do that. This is out of a programming, out of all, all animals are on, 
a simple like program outside of just the the drive to live and reproduce yeah right but we 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 can make all the choice we're the only species that needs like fucking closes but what is always <laughs> what's always been weird to me is that there's no there's not a um, there's not a spectrum of of that of consciousness and and choices and it's like we live in a world where everything is like like best baseline program survival mm-hmm. and then there's one of all this fucking thing well there there are that other animals that are very smart and things like that we're but, consciously aware of right but nowhere close nowhere close we're nowhere close having a monkey deciding that he's going to stop living there and uh, creating a company here and start wearing a cap and that we're and not even at small level like the 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 difference is insane and it's always been weird into my mind as if you know we've been planted here uh um, it's always been weird like i've never there's there's spectrum out of everything but just this is the kind of thing like we're some tiny little ant farm for an alien race yeah like i i it's not there are theories like that uh, right that we've been think about a fish tank right you like in a fish tank you put a bunch of fish that you want to belong in there and then when the bad algae comes, you dump a chemical in and that algae goes away, mm. you know? And then when whatever, something starts like going too much and it starts to affect what you like in it, you change it. Yeah. The plants grow too much and you can't see the fish. So you take that plant out, you put something in that's better. It's yeah. That could very well be why humanity's got to where it is. Mm-hmm. It'd be a really freaky thing that I think would be tough to comprehend, but you know, yeah. like people start developing and they're like well we like where this is going how do we encourage them like how do we feed them how do we get oh let's let's help them figure out tools and fire and food and like yeah it would be fucking entertaining to watch can you imagine that you could watch like out of imagine we're like space is just like in a fucking bowl of something and we're the and there's fish these things that are that are looking <laughs> at it. like it would be fucking entertaining as hell you know like, and you watch like look at these people and you're just like and always like surprised like how we turned out like how we overcame like all and we how we we try to fucking kill each other and then we do something else you're like hey those guys over there getting on those guys over there you know (laughs) like in a fish tank you're like dang my goldfish is eating that guppy you're like hey stop that you know but you don't really care they're betting on us yeah crazy man um i think it's time for to try your your other beer you know it and we're gonna get into some um, some fire some fire stuff shout out to the salted lime lager it's uh i'm not a craft beer guy I've never tried this, but um, my dad gave them to me actually on Father's Day, mm. and uh, I was like, "Oh dang, these are good." Yeah, and we're gonna try this in the same time. Oh, let's do it! Hey, if you enjoy this conversation, please consider subscribing to this channel. If you wanna give it some support, give us a blue thumb. Feel free to uh, let me know your thoughts about it, what you liked, what you disliked, uh, in the comment and on my hand. I promise you that I will work tirelessly to keep bringing the best stories, the best voices, um, to keep working on this purpose that I have and uh, to keep work on myself to improve as an interviewer. But I definitely need your help if you like it, if you want to support. Feel free to do it. Okay, so we're going to try this salted lime lager. 
una cerveza. Yeah. And we're going to try as well these crispy crabs. So we went uh, at the Richmond... Uh, Night market? Yeah. Yeah. And um, it was... It was pretty crazy. It was it was cool to do. I would probably redo it one time. It's just like you need to be ready. Yeah. Oh my god, it smells like seafood. Does it? And we bought that at a um, some kind of grocery uh Oh yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what Prince Rupert smells like. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I wonder if I should get a big piece or a small piece. I'll take that piece. Like, eh, sorry, crab. Crispy crab. You know what it smells like? It sounds silly, but it smells like cat food. Salty. Wow. A little <laughs> bit like seaweed. I'm going to be honest on the record. I do not like it. It's not terrible. But. Um, Interesting mix of like sweet. And savory. Oh, this is good. Though. How's that beer? Is that beer good? <laughs> is it better than the crispy crabs? <laughs> Cheers. I respect the crispy crabs. I won't be um, finish. I won't be finishing that pack, but um, I like to try new things like that. Um, yeah, the Richmond market was was pretty cool. Like some crazy thing, but um, your stomach needs to be ready for it. Yeah. You need to prep. Like, first of all, you need to not eat for, I would say, at least a day. Mm -hmm. Because the problem is, like, there's so many things that you want to try everything. But everything is super heavy. Yeah. So, like, you got to play it. Uh, and portion size, right? Portion like size. Most of them are big. So then you couldn't just like if you made small portions, it's easy. You go around and have a small portion of everything there. If it's big, it's like yeah. But it was cool. Is it's it's to do once if you're curious about food and if you like Asian culture food, um, it's to to do if you like food. You need to like food. Yeah. And you need to like also like greasy food. Yeah. Um, you know. I gotta say, for the record, I'm not a fan of the crispy crabs. You either. neither. Yeah. It's weird. The we first tried. bite was salty and fishy, and the second bite was like a sesame cracker, mm -hmm. like sweet and honey-esque. Yeah. I also had a look in one of those crabs' backs, and like there's no meat in there. Not, no. It's not, you're, it's getting, you're like literally eating crab shells <laughs> yeah. glazed in honey <laughs> with sesame seeds. <laughs> Can you see? Okay, so now we're going to try chocolate. Chocolate. Chocolate flavor chips. Just to remove... Like potato chips. Yeah, but just to remove the, the taste of the crab. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, they're like... 
if you've ever left a bag of chips open for far too long and they get kind of like squishy, that's kind of how these feel. Interesting. Wait. It's that weird, like the taste of Lay's regular potato chips, but there's a light dusting of cocoa on top. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. I'm not against them. No. This goes a little better than the crabs. <laughs> I, I kind of like the beer best of all, to be honest with you. Yeah, the beer is really good. So... These wildfires, that was, that was wild, eh? Man. So just, just to recall, um, you, you were on the ones there were, because at the same time of the West Kelowna ones, there was one in, um, what's the? Adams Lake. Yeah. Up in the Shushwap. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that was where you were. Yeah. So yeah. like, man, wildfire is such a broad term. I'm a, a paid on call firefighter with the city of Lake country and it would be the district of Lake country. And, um, we live in an area that's definitely affected by wildfires. So they do a good job of training us to, to respond to those. Mm -hmm. Um, and, Part of what we do is we can help out the BC Wildfire Services as contract trucks um, to come out and help with structural defense and things like that. And we say, I say, a lot of these terms are going to be like, I say it, you might not know what they mean, but I'll try and be broad and explain where possible. Structural defense is if you had a forest fire encroaching on homes or homes in a forest that was on fire, like you wouldn't necessarily have BC wildfire services people there spraying water on the home or around the home to put out the fire per se. Generally, you try and get in a fire truck and a crew of people who take care of that. So like BC wildfire services firefighters, one, are animals. They're just like genetically different. I've never seen people work so hard for so long in shittier conditions. They'll go out and they'll chop trees down and then they'll shovel and pickaxe into the ground using like a Pulaski to dig up two feet into the dirt to make sure there's no organic matter so that mm. the fire can't burn through that patch of dirt. Is it to get a, that jumps and parachute on, on those guys, locations or those guys will go for like more remote fires or to get mm. different information from fires that I'd say are, are harder to get information on or mm. something like that. Um, the, the wildfire guys, they'll roll and usually pick up trucks that have boxes on the back with their tools, their chainsaws, their Pulaski's. Mm. The Pulaski's like a, it's got an axe on one side and then it's got the flat part of a pickaxe on the other side. And those guys will use water to put some of the fire and stuff out. But for the most part, any structural defense that happens is usually contracted out to different fire department crews who have the apparatus for it. So the trucks for it, the crews who are 
ready and willing to prevent the fires from impinging on houses. Um, and so that's that's where I fall along in the in the BC Wildfire Services side of things. I'm actually a an engine boss, which means I have the opportunity to sit in what we would call the officer seat or the in a in a typical car you have the driver and then the passenger the officer sits in the passenger seat the driver focuses on driving and they typically operate the pump panel and the truck and stuff like that and the crew sits in the back so they're kind of like the team lead they Mm. they call the shots they communicate with the uppers they um can take the the leader's intent and and decide what to do with it and so that's kind of where i sat this year for the the wildfire side of things and so um earlier quite a bit earlier in the year there was a big area of of fort st john that was on fire Um, i believe that was called the adams lake complex and i got to drive up um and spend a day with a tender company up there but we didn't really get too much because that was already 15 days into uh, what we'd call a deployment. We were switching a crew out. We showed up and then it rained from the heavens down and put a lot of the fire out and everybody's super thankful and we got went home. But then later in the year, um, so the Adams Lake? No, Adams Lake would have been the one that happened in the shoe shop. I think so. Yeah, Adams Lake's the one I think that happened in the shoe shop. Big fire was affecting the the regional district of the central Shushwap, I think, and um, we got requested to go up in a a water tender. I call it a tender, but a water tender, which basically means it's a truck that carries a certain amount of water, generally more water than most of the fire engines take. Um, so our job is usually to deliver water to engines or s- we have small pumps and stuff on that. We can still put out fires and things like that. But for the most part, it's about supplying waters in these areas because a lot of these areas are fairly remote. I mean, when you think about it, you've got two different types of fires, really. You've got uh, interface and intermix fires where um, the boundaries of where the, the houses are in the or close to the, the fire and stuff like that. So... Um, some of these places don't have hydrants readily available. They have rivers or lakes or um, some some static source of water that you need to get water from and then take it to the trucks that are actually in the affected areas. So that's what we were doing up there. We did that for a couple of days. We showed up and they said, yeah, we're expecting a big, a big weather event because weather really affects the fires. We expect it to happen on this day. We're going to try and do our best to prepare. We're going to basically get sea cans with open tops and fill them full of water, put them at certain places. We're going to do sprinkler protection, which is a whole nother division of wildland firefighting where you run water lines all around a community and go onto the roofs and peg in sprinklers that spray water around the house. And um, we were delivering water for that. We were setting that up in anticipation of this big wind event. Um, when you're up on deployment, you traditionally stay in a camp, which is usually mm. some big field that's fairly protected from the fires. And we were up in uh, a camp and we had just got back. You, you typically work 12, if not more hour days. We just got back and it's kind of like a mix between people who rush to either shower or people who rush to eat their food. Mm. Um, in this individual night we were having some maintenance problems with our truck so we did neither we actually 
ended up as crazy jacking this truck up, taking the axle seal out and replacing it and putting it back. But when we were done that, we managed to get some food and we we're me and my, um, my, my engineer, my driver, um, was sitting at a picnic table eating and we could see over the hill where the smoke was coming from earlier in the past couple of days where now we were getting fire tornadoes ripping up into the sky. So we were having like Ooh. active tree candling, which is where basically a whole tree just whoosh, lights up into, into mm. visible fire. So we could tell things are big. And, and at that time um, we got a notification on our phone that a fire had started in West Kelowna and it was pretty severe and they were, they were monitoring it. And, um, so we went on to the to the next day and we did more of this fire prepping and meanwhile a a, a big fire got uh, what they would call a backburn which is um, an attempt to when the wind conditions uh, when the weather conditions when the the topography and the geography allow it a backburn is lit so that you can take the fire you basically start it close to these houses and hope that nature pushes it towards what's actively burning so you can get rid of any of the fuel that would bring it in towards these houses mm. and so one of those was lit um, we were working pretty close to it aware of it um, and then this would happen to be the night we expected the big weather shift to happen and so that backburn was lit with the intent of removing those fuels so that if the weather event happened it wouldn't push the fire directly into a few towns that we're working on um, we got back to camp again fairly late that night did the whole routine shower grab camp food big camp staples is um chocolate milk mm -hmm. there's a basically a, a fridge full of chocolate milk and everybody appreciates it and um my buddy goes, hey, that West Kelowna fire is getting pretty intense. And I was like, oh. And we read the Castnet story, and we're like, shit. You know, West Kelowna's not too far off from kind of Lake Country Kelowna in that area. Definitely not far enough away to not be concerned about a wildfire, especially given the conditions, which is dry, hot, and windy at the time. And uh, we woke up the next morning, and we uh, we went down to our incident briefing after we had breakfast and the briefing is where you have somebody from the incident management team who comes out and they usually cover things like weather conditions, um, special points of interest, leaders intent, which is the, the commander basically says, I want you guys to do something along the lines of this. And you find ways to do that without micromanaging you. So basically mm. says, this is what we want to accomplish. Do it however you have to. And, um, one of the big debates for that day was if there was going to be evacuations because evacuations happen kind of they kind of go two ways they usually start with an alert which is like hey we think something's going to happen here so pack your bags get your special documents get them to the door anything that's valuable load it up you know um, and start fire smarting your property and then it, and that's if you're lucky that's if it happens in enough time that you get that notice mm. then you get an, an evacuation order which is like hey you need to leave because this is coming and if you're still around when it hits we can't assume any responsibility for you we can't be in there to help you we can't be in there to save you it's not like a regular structure fire where you risk a lot to save a lot it's like 
this is gonna be a mass scale incident we're not going to be there to to support you you guys need to find your own way out which sometimes leads to um death mm. and, and critical injury um so we were waiting that morning to hear if the area we were working in was going to be put on order they were on alert but if they were going to be put on order and it was kind of a a little bit of a sphincter tightening um, meeting in that the tone for the day was really like, hey, based on the weather event like and, and where the fire is at, we know shit's going to hit the fan. We don't know when it's going to hit the fan, but it will. And when it does, we'll pull you back into safety and then we'll put you back in after the fact because that's one of the tactics is basically you let the fire come through. The intensity rolls through fairly quickly and then you get to go back and try and save whatever might still be burning but viable and so i said we'll pull you out when we need to and we'll put you back in as soon as we can um, but get ready to do some hard work get ready to be in these situations keep your situational awareness up so that you can be safe where you're operating and then um, something i've never seen happen before the commander gets a a phone call and he kind of steps back and everybody kind of looks around because generally the commanders don't, when you're in a meeting, you're in a meeting. And he steps back and he says, um, Lake Country, where are you? And like, you know those high school movies where like the seas part and there's just the person who's in trouble standing there? Seas part and me and my buddy are standing there and we've got Lake Country in our shirts. And he goes, hey, you guys got to go. Your town's on fire. Mm. And uh, me and my buddy and we're like kind of expected it to happen based on what we'd heard from the night before mm. and the updates we were getting from the rest of our teammates back here in Lake Country is that the fire was so bad in West Kelowna, it jumped the lake, um, which means that it had spotted kilometers ahead of where the fire front was. And so, yeah, okay, cool. So we've got, we've got camp set up. We've got a tent each. We've got a chair each. We've got all of our gear in the tents because you can't keep it on the trucks when you're, you're operating. It's hard to operate that way. So we go into mass scale mobilize mode, which is like dump as much water as you're legally allowed to dump from your tank, right? Ideally, you carry a quarter of your tank at all times. So one of us is like, hey, you know, my teammate, you go take care of that we'll start ripping down tents. Okay. And then there's also the paperwork side of things. Cause it's a lot of paperwork that goes into the, the wildfire side of things that I don't think people truly know is that mm. everything's meticulously documented. What you do during the day, when you do it, who you talk to, what their phone numbers are, um, who you, you are keeping track every day. of the Every thing. day you write it up every day. You fill out uh, a two fourteen, mm. and, um, and, and you fill out your, uh, Oh shit. The name's evading me here. It's a logbook that I yeah. should really remember the name of, but you fill out a 214 in a logbook that says what hours you were on the fire, what apparatus you had, what personnel, mm, who yeah. signs it off, managers and stuff like that. Cause so you can get paid, your department gets paid. There's a certain amount of legality when it comes to what you do and how you do it, when you do it, why you do it. Mm. Lots of responsibility when you're the, the, the team lead and the engine boss on what you do you have the power to do a lot but you bear the brunt of what you do when you do it and so there's a bunch of paperwork when it comes to checking out anybody familiar with like the ics system which is the incident command system knows that when you have a large scale incident 
like the branches that come down look like a waterfall and you're one speck in that branch and the people at the top need to know where you are what you're doing safety wise logistics wise planning wise finance wise like everything so one guy packs up stuff one guy does the paperwork you come back they switch one guy gets the truck ready and when i say that's the fastest we've ever packed up i mean when somebody tells you your town's on fire and like your your brothers and your sisters you know are going to be in the shit you haul ass and Mm. and and we hauled ass we packed up we checked out of of camp um and we hit the road and i've driven in a, a few fire trucks i've been in the in the officer's seat and the, and the crew seat quite a few times and there's some calls where you're really dreading what you go to but nothing is like driving back to your town when you know that there's a a, a natural disaster heading towards it mm-hmm. yeah. and you've been trained and you signed on to try and take care of that you know, it's not just it's not just any any town. It's your town, and your wife lives there, and your kid lives there, and your buddy's wife and kid live there, and your parents live there, and you know. So, we tailed it down from from the the Adams Lake area down there pretty quick. And um, as you as you get closer, your truck radio picks up more and more. So you start to get into um, the frequencies where you can hear your friends on the radio. Uh, talking about updating conditions, plans of attack. And uh, you get into the point where you can talk to and hear what your chiefs are saying on the radio. And and meanwhile, we didn't just have, like, the thing about fire departments is they all help each other out. So if there's a big fire in West Kelowna, Lake Country sending resources there to help out. And in this case, I think we dedicated a command vehicle with one of our chiefs, uh, type one engine with a crew of four Um, we dedicated our marine rescue boat to evacuate people from the waterfront in west Kelowna. Um, i think we sent a bush truck with a crew of three so we like if you think about it we tied up a ton of assets and trying to help out west Kelowna. and then when it hit us we had to call those assets back and we were one of the assets up in adams lake helping Mm -hmm. and so everybody's trying to get back so you're hearing communications of these people who are trying to drive through Kelowna in traffic and and something we typically don't do is roll code three through other people's jurisdictions there's just no need to when you were what is code three code three is oh sorry code three is when you have your your emergency equipment activated so you have your lights on and your sirens on Hmm. so it's um part of the reason why people have to get out of the way for you when you're coming through so Lights on, sirens on is code three. So typically you don't run code three in another person's area. And in this case, trucks were coming back from West Kelowna. They're rolling through Kelowna. You know how Kelowna traffic can be. And um, giving an update to the chief, I hear my one of my best buddies on the fire department, a guy I went through um, recruit training with, you know, he radios in this chief and says, hey, we're here just letting you know our ETA is 45 minutes out. And the chief goes, hey, light it up. I need you here now, mm. which is like to have the, I like start to get a little bit of the shivers to think about it, but to have the chief basically say like, whatever you got to do, we need you now that like your spidey senses tingle 
as like as a sports guy you start to get ready for game mode right mm-hmm. you switch from hey this is um like this sensing this your senses are, are aroused and you're ready to go to like you're locked in and ready to go right so what is the so you arrive close to the fire like what is the first thing uh so we're we're in we're in oyama which is kind of that little spit of land between kalamaka lake and woods lake and we've got a certain amount of logistics we still have to handle our fire truck is loaded down with all of our travel equipment so we got to make it back to the hall to ditch that and we got to fill up with water Mm. and we uh so we're we're now knocked it up to code three we're running lights and sirens getting everybody out of the way um we make it to the main fire hall in lake country station 71 and it's a sight to see this this fire hall has eight bay doors and usually eight pieces of fire apparatus in it a rescue truck a type one engine a ladder truck uh, a bush type one engine a four by four pumper. Um, it's got uh, a bush truck. It's got a water tender. It's got uh, a marine rescue boat. These bays are filled. It's like a garage. It looks filled. Mm. We show up and the parking lot is full of cars, which means people are there, um, usually in trucks. And we pop one of the bay doors and that, that whole, the whole fire hall is empty. There's not a single truck in it. So we throw our gears right in the bay. Like normally the fire department is very stuff comes in, it gets checked. It's like, it's ready to go again. It's very organized. You don't just dump stuff. And we're like, we understood at this point in time, we weren't in incident management stage. We were in crisis management stage. We checked everything in. There was another guy, another crew member there, recruit. Um, We picked him up and we were, we responded to staging, which was told at a certain location close to where the fire had spotted over. And when we got there, it's like a scene out of the movies. There's embers, smoke billowing over top of the road. All you can see are the lights. Command station there. We show up. I check in with command. That's part of the responsibilities of being an officer, see where the crew's needed. Um, and, of course, we're, we're jittery, ready to go. And we get told to stand by command has to move locations because mm. the fire conditions are too bad there. So we help command move. We get set to where we're going and we get told, okay, now you're going to, you're going to start actioning this section. And at this point in time, you're in, you're in a city, but you're at a cross street of two roads and everywhere you look around it is just stuff on fire. And you're like, this is one crossroad of a city of multiple. And you're so into it that you're not sure how far the boundaries stretch. Like, is it the whole city? Is it just this little subdivision? Is it more than that? Didn't really matter because you get given a task and you start working on that task. And we were put to work almost immediately. Mm. Hey, head up here, protect these houses. Fire's coming up. Um, By this point in time, it was severe enough that we were able to request air support, which means we had... Um, a few choppers with buckets underneath buckets are, um, long lying bags where they would drop it into the, um, lake. They'd fill up with water. 
they'd be able to carry it over air areas of intense fire and they'd pull a drawstring the bag would open up and dump all its water so they're doing this but what they do is in doing that their rotor wash which is the air that comes down off the the propellers um it stirs up the fire beneath and it shoots embers right over top of your head so in an area where you think okay the fire's in front of me i can see it i know what's behind me i have escape routes you know this and that all of a sudden you're keeping your situation up your situational awareness up and you look behind you and there's uh, somebody's lawns on fire behind you and you go ah oh, shit oh. i'm no longer in a safe spot i'm i'm between the fire front and a spot behind and like that's a bad place to be mm. and uh that was like timeline wise we're probably six hours into things it's still the morning it's about 10 or 11 o'clock or something like that and like it from 11 until probably about five or six it all blurred together it was just a big firefight running around to different houses, making sure they didn't catch on fire. Different people are driving around, finding different things. Um, luckily for us, luckily uh, for us, we didn't have to help with any of the tactical evacuation. So this fire happened so quickly that there was no evacuation alert. It just went straight to order. It was like, not only go straight to order where, you know, your phone dings and you get the notification, the emergency notification, mm -hmm. hey, there's a fire here. You got to go. It was like you get a bang, bang, bang on the door. And this firefighter with wide eyes shows up and says, Hey, fire's coming. You got five minutes and you need to be gone. Yeah. That's crazy. Like it was, that happened so quick. Like later into this event, I went to a house where there was happy birthday banners up, uh, like uh, coolers, food on a table. Like somebody was having a birthday party for their kid. Hmm. And they were told to go and like, they just had to leave it. Oh, right. Like it's, it happens so quick and, yeah. and thankfully everybody left. Like we really didn't have any, we didn't have too many problems with people staying, which can be an issue because like I said before, when people decide to stay, you can't, you're not supposed to help them when shit hits the fan. Have you ever, I have like people that decide that says, no, we, we don't, we don't absolutely. Leave. Yeah. All the time. Oh, yeah. uh, you know what there's it's it's diverse because some people do help some people stay and they put up sprinkler protection and then it's nice because you know you don't that's one house you don't have to worry with theoretically mm. Mm. but it goes the other way in that it, all of a sudden if this structure gets impinged upon catches on fire and the occupant's still in there um, most of the time they're able body and they can leave sometimes they can't for whatever reason as a firefighter I think we all I think for the most part, people join to help people and your, and your instructions are not to help these people that could be in a life threatening situation because it put you in jeopardy. And if you get into a situation where you need help, then more people come to help you. You can't focus on stopping the fire or reventing the fire, or helping anything else. Everything has to stop to try and help that. Right. Mm. It's frustrating. I think the tough part about it is that there's a lot of taboo around it too. So people who stay, I mean, it's, it's your choice. As long as you don't have children, if you have children, we'll just call the RCMP and they'll come and take your kids away. 
Mm. You're not allowed to put a kid in that situation where there's an evacuation order and you make your kids stay behind in an unsafe mm. area. So the RCMP will come and they'll just take your kids away. Usually the families decide to leave as a group. But if you're if you're above 19 and it's your primary residence, you can say, hey, I'm not going. Right. As long as you stay on your primary residence, uh, your property. And, and people do. So, like I said, some people help. Some people don't. Um, but it's their choice, right? It's, yeah. there's kind of a few, there's a few ways you look at it. And I really got to experience this firsthand from a lot of guys who, who knew quite a bit. Um, cause I asked them, I said, what do you do with people who are staying? Right. Some people would turn their, you'd, you'd roll up their driveway to make sure they're gone. You'd check the property over and they'd, somebody sitting in the kitchen, have a glass of wine. They'd shut the lights off and run and hide in the pantry. I mean, there's a glass of wine and an iPhone sitting out on the table, you know, they're home. You mm. just saw them, yeah. but you knock on the door, they won't answer. Yeah. So you want to have a conversation with them and let them know like, Hey, it's your right to stay. You can stay if you want. Don't leave your property. Cause if you leave your property, you get kicked out when it's an evacuation order, but know that if you're here, like my recommendation to you is your car's pointed nose down the driveway with a full tank of gas and everything you need in it to leave. Cause if that thing rolls over this way, it's dangerous and you're going to want to be out quick. Mm. That's the, that's the nice way to put it. Like that's when you go all parent on them. You're concerned about their safety. There's some guys who can be a bit of a dick and they'll give you like the dental record story, which is like you roll up to the door, you actually speak to the people and you say, cool. You're staying. Yeah. Okay. I'm staying. Uh, do you have a copy of your dental records? No. Why do I need a copy of the dental records? Oh, so we can identify your bodies once the fires come through. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's brutal. Like it's brutal, yeah. you know. And but, yeah. I think it just comes from from a, a a time of frustration where you're trying your hardest to do your job and the easiest way to do your job. And I mean, like, when these communities are empty, you're still driving a fire truck down the road and you're moving urgently. And if it's an area where you're not expecting people to be, yeah. And all of a sudden, some car backs out in front of you. You risk their safety. You risk your safety. You risk the effectiveness of your tactics. Yeah. But that's from a firefighter's perspective. I don't, I don't necessarily get to see it from a homeowner's perspective or somebody who, who wants to stay at home. And it's not that I don't want to see it. I, I think I respect their choices. I think it just makes life a little more difficult for us to do our job. No, yeah, that makes sense. I guess the thing is, if anyway, because maybe people think they can save their home or something, because like, if anyway, there are big risks or let's say there, there are decent risks, um, whether you stay or not, is it going to make a difference? Or do you feel like you can save your home if you stay in? Because if there's like, let's say there's, hey, there's pretty good chance there's a fire comes there. Is it really a problem that you take this, your stuff and you leave and you wait somewhere else? Uh because if you stay, you're betting on maybe it's not going to touch. Like the, the risk seems like pretty, it depends, I guess, how close is, is the thing and how big is the, the risk. But if you decide, the people that decide to stay when there's like an ev evacuation order, I'm wondering what goes into your mind. Like, do you feel like you can s save <coughs> your <coughs> your house? Or yeah, it's it's hard to to picture, I guess. I mean, I've never been in that situation, so I can't really 
Uh, no, but I mean, from uh, your perspective, yeah, it, it totally makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and I mean, I guess all of this is my perspective. Like, none none of this is the thoughts and or opinions of the uh, Lake Country Fire Department or, um, you know, or the BC Wildfire Service. This is all just as somebody who's been a paid on call member of a fire department. Mm -hmm. Um, who who joined to help out the community and and my answer to that is it's not doom and gloom if the fire is coming and it's coming with an intensity that's dangerous and, and incident command has deemed it's dangerous and there needs to be evacuation at order um, there's very little you can do to stop it from burning down if it really wants to burn down mm. the the intensity of these fires and how fast they move and what they catch on to is tough you can do the best thing you can do to protect you and your home from fire is to fire smart it. And there's, there's courses, there's people, there's guidelines, there's even grants that people can get he, like in Lake country where, um, if you fire smart your property, the, I think the province pays you something like 500 bucks to do it, hmm. you know, which is like, in, in my opinion, fire smarting your property just means taking care of your property. But so what does what does it mean fire smart your property? So what would you have to do? Fire smarting gives you zones around your house. So the the immediate zone I think is one meter between like the border of your house and out from that. And that's basically we don't want any combustibles in this one meter zone. So like no grass, no shrubs, no wood furniture, like no doormats, no nothing. Right? Like don't have any of that within one meter of your immediate property. Hmm. Only one meter? That that sounds that. Looks... Well, that's just zone one. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. There's there's a ton of okay. zones. Oh, okay. okay. You get to zone two, which is up to I think ten meters, and that's like mm -hmm. don't have any trees with long limbs or any um, any light fuels. Like if you have leaves or deadfall, like get rid of it. Pine needles, things like that. Trees that have limbs that reach towards the house, get rid of it. It's it's basically what it's doing is trying to create a protective bubble around the house. So the further mm -hmm. away you get from the house, the more kind of natural material or, or natural fuels you can have but we want that to be staying away from the house like the big problem with houses getting on fire is not that the forest catches on fire and then it goes right up to the house it's that the embers land in in this dry ready to burn material that is close to the house and that eventually sparks up and lights the house on fire so like doormats terrible you have those wicker doormats a spark lands in and it smolders for two days. You, the fire front's long gone. Everybody else is elsewhere, but that doormat's been smoldering for two days. You get another big wind and dry spell and boom, the doormat catches on fire, which catches the deck on fire. The deck catches the house on fire. And then, you know, an area you thought was good yeah. is burnt down. And, and you know what? There's, there's procedures in place to try and mitigate that. We do a lot of patrolling after a wildfire happens to make sure that that doesn't happen after the fact. But... It's your number one thing you can do to protect your property is to fire smart it. And then I'd say number two, invest in a sprinkler system. Um, and the reason you do that is because when the water sprinklers, you know, all go over your roof and uh, all over your grass and the area around your house, it raises the humidity up, which makes it harder for your, um, basically makes it harder for the fire to happen. Mm. You, you start to help some of the, the inputs that, are, are ripe for fires happening um did, did you did, were you guys then afterward went back into the the west Kelowna ones so we or? didn't go back to the west Kelowna ones because mm -hmm. the lake country one 
went really hard for about three nights. Mm. So we, there's a lot of people who worked many hours like and and this is where it kind of gets funky in that nobody likes to put themselves up on a pedestal but when i say that there's a lot of people who who did hero like things like people gave it their all mm. for many many hours and then came back and repeated to do that on little sleep to make sure things are taken care of we worked our fire for probably three four days on just trying to contain it and get it to the point where nobody's going to lose anything and and people lost things there's i think three structures burnt down three primary structures in lake country burnt down because of it um but we were so focused on our own incident that we were actually turned into the ones that had other fire halls sending apparatus towards us. We had um, the township of Langley send apparatus up. We had Williams Lake came by. A Soyuz came to help out. Um, City of Kelowna came to help out with some of their apparatus. Um, and like that's just how it goes. You mm. you help out other communities, and then when it's your turn, they help you out. Mm. Yeah, so Lake Lake Country went for for quite a quite a long time, and uh, there was a lot of hard decisions that had to be made about yeah. what to protect and and when it comes down to it, as a uh, as somebody who's in that engine boss, sometimes you have to make tough decisions that might adversely affect some areas in order to strategically protect more or allow for more life safety initiatives like keeping your firefighters or your team or your group your task force safe yeah yeah so how do you guys um when you when there's the fire going on like so you have like air support and most things uh on the ground so you you have these guys that can like cut the trees before it gets on but and then others are but he's essentially uh, spraying water. Yeah. And and how do you how do you um, and you're like kind of like sent into one position and you you spray from there and then another group is sent like somewhere else. Like it's just it's just monitored like that that way. Yeah. So that's an excellent statement. It's it's hard to explain mm. but i'll try in that um we go by something called the span of control which is basically one person can manage up to five possibly seven other people mm -hmm. you think about it if you have five apparatus who all have an engine boss on them that engine boss responds to one person which is usually a, a task force leader or, or a strike team leader or something like that So by having the span of control, you allow that one person up top to manage five. And then that task force leader probably is in a group of five that respond to somebody else. So you kind of have this chain of command where it's like each level knows what the level below is doing, reports it to the level above. At the same time, each, each level is trained to do different things, is skilled enough to know different things, and is really expected to be able to perform in different scenarios. So 
your lowest level, which would be under one engine boss, is your truck company, which has a driver, uh, and then usually two two crew members. And so the driver's responsibility is to effectively drive the vehicle and know how to provide water to the crew or um, get water from a certain circumstance, operate the truck pump. The crew members are responsible for putting out the fire or protecting the structures in various means. How they do that all comes down to what training they have, what they're supposed to do, what the objectives are. So like in, in, structural defense the crew members are are really well educated in that we want the fire the forest fire to come right close to the house and then we're going to put it out right there the reason we do that is because if if all that stuff that's going to burn like we think about it you walk through the woods back here there's pine needles there's little deadfall trees there's lots of different fuels and it's like the fine fuels burn are flashy they burn the quickest they go hot the stuff like that it takes quite a bit to light a tree on fire so it just goes to show how hot these fires burn how fast they go but they want to burn all that off up to the house and put it out so that if for whatever reason the wind shifts and it comes back or it goes away or it keeps burning this way it doesn't affect that structure because you've taken away the fuel that it would need to burn to get there and so the way those crews are trained to do what they need to do, the drivers are trained to what they need to do, the engine boss or the, the crew leader is trained to, to look out for what needs to happen when it needs to happen based on what they're told to do. So you oftentimes ask your task force leader for a, an assignment or a job. And they'll say, hey, we want you to protect Cascade Drive. And it's like, cool, copy that. We're going to protect Cascade Drive. So you, as an engine boss, you say, okay, driver let's we're gonna drive cascade drive we're gonna stop every three houses we're gonna walk to the backyard and see what the scene is back there how far away is that fire what is topography we're dealing with where where can we get in to put lines down to do that stuff so you might do some pre-scope or it might be like hey that fire like the fire's hitting cascade drive right now go in there and start at this address and put as many like as many things out on that drive as you can you might start four houses down from another truck that starts to another truck and you guys just kind of work in sequence to keep the fire from burning down cascade drive and the task force leader is going to be instructed to hey task force leader you're responsible for i don't know would this be considered east hill what kind of area of Uh, yeah i think so so they'd be like just just north of east hill so They'd be like, okay, this task force, task force leader 10, your job is to protect Northeast Hill. Task force leader 11, your job is to protect Central East Hill, right? So like different kind of areas. And then that task force leader is going to be trained to know how to manage their crews, know how to interpret the weather, know how to expect the, the time for things to happen. And the education piece on it is really cool. Mm. You know, it's, it, but it comes down to a lot of finer understandings adding up to bigger things. Yeah. And then that goes above task force leaders to, you have different, you know, branch leaders that are going to manage different things. Like you could have a water supply group that makes sure that the water tenders bring all the water. You could have a strike team that takes care of all the fires. You could have, you know, yeah, oh man. Yeah. So it's, you know what, it's really dynamic and it's hard to control. And it's chaotic, especially when you're in a crisis situation. Hmm. And at the basis of it all, 
everybody's trying to think about safety. So you do your best to communicate where you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it. And you're always responsible for your own safety. So your head's on a swivel. You're making sure you got two ways out at all times. You're making sure you know of an area that's a, a TRA or a temporary refugee area, which means that you can go to it. And if the fire comes, you're not going to die immediately. Mm. Or a safety zone, which is like you could go to it and you could probably weather the fire front passing through without significant injury to you or your apparatus. Um, they call that um, laces. So it's mm. like acronyms that fire department loves acronyms, acronyms to, to remember certain things. Mm. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah. This big organization. Yeah. Oh man. You think about it, it's a monster, but I'm sure it's like <laughs> anything, right? Like you say, how do you produce a podcast? And you're like, well, you got to do this, 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 this <laughs> seems like a lot, but when you get into it, it's really yeah. quite procedural and, mm. and so forth. Yeah. So that makes sense. How, how is the, um, what is crazy is that when you think about firefighters from the outside is that you think about fighting fires, but most, um, it's not like there's fires all the time. And I guess we don't uh, think that much about what you guys are doing, um, the other type of work you're doing when you're not fighting fires. Uh, so what what is like, what is like the the, um, the regular when there's not when it's not crisis mo mode wildfire that is burning the entire o o <laughs> Okanagan. Uh, tell me a little bit about the the daily more regular even though like there's other forms of crisis right um, but like all the things that you guys are doing yeah um, so i guess it, there's two distinguishments that have to be made the the district of lake country is what we would call a um, a composite fire department which means that there's a few paid positions and then there's a um, the remainder are, are pocs or paid on calls mm. so we've got um one chief, two deputy chiefs, one administrative reception clerk, um, two fire inspectors and two maintenance guys who are paid to be at the fire hall Monday through Friday. They're also paid on call firefighters. So they have all the training the rest of us do, but they're at the fire hall to do other duties. So that's why it'd be considered composite is that they're paid to be there and respond to daytime calls. Mm. The That's, what is that, seven? That's seven out of 70 members that Lake Country Fire Department has, which is um, paid on call, which means they all have regular jobs, right? So for me at the current moment, um, I'm working at UBC Okanagan as a facilities um, management personnel. I go around and I fix chairs and desks and I paint offices and I, you know, plunge toilets and I mm. fix urinals and... Um, do snow removal and stuff like that Monday to Friday, seven to two thirty, hmm. And, uh, other people are, are, um, RMTs there. They could be cops. They could be paramedics. They could be office workers, managers. They could be stay at home parents. And, and what happens is you carry around a, a pager when it goes off, somebody's having an emergency and you, if you're able to, drive in your personal vehicle from your house to safely, of course, to the, <laughs> <laughs> to the fire hall 
and then you get inside and you get geared up and you go. And like those emergencies could be, um, first medical responses. So anything from like, um, broken limbs to strokes to cardiac arrest to suicide um or or to to people um attempting suicide like it's or accidents you got mvas motor vehicle accidents where cars crash into each other into objects or um, recreational things like that You've got fire alarm calls, which is like somebody has a home monitoring system and, and Sally set off the smoke detector cooking bacon. Um, or you've got um, gas leaks. Construction company hits a, a, a gas line and it's leaking gas everywhere and you're there to make sure that the gas company comes and turns it off or you're there mm-hmm. if it lights on fire. You've got hazardous material response if a a big tanker truck carrying chemicals crashes on the highway and there's like pink fluorescent goop leaking out like hopefully nobody's ever close to that we don't necessarily have the training to deal with that but we have the training to make sure the public stays safe around it so when when all these calls are are getting out on these these people that are uh, paid on call do you have any any way to know like should I take it or or not? Like, is it is it since everybody and the most people that are coming responding to the call are coming, or do you know? Do you have like a way to know? Ed, do I have to take this if if there's already enough people, or like how does that? Do you have a way to monitor who's going, who's not? Do you know if there's people responding other than you or not? Yeah. So Lake Country is divided into three fire halls. You've got Winfield, which is station 71, um, Oyama, which is station 91, and then Cars Landing, which is station 81. And those take care of a, uh, a geographical area. Mm. So like if a call happens in this area, it's going to be this hall. Mm. So you take those 70 members and you kind of split them up and you say, okay, we've got 15 in Cars Landing, 15 in Oyama, and then the remaining 30 to 40 stay in Winfield. So if it's like a Winfield call, the other two halls don't get called. So the members who belong to those halls don't show up Mm. out of that. A lot of them can't come because they usually have obligations like looking after kids, like working, like being tied up or in a different part of the area, you know, and then out of the ones who can show up, we do have a system on our phone called I am responding where it's like, you can see who checks in for the call. So the pager goes off, your phone goes off. Um, it says what the call is, gives you a few notes on it. And then it says who's responding. Uh, so you can kind of see in terms of deciding whether or not you take the call or not, usually it's a good idea to make sure you have more response than not enough response. Yeah. So Usually a lot of people show up and there's actually quite a few people who sit on what we call a standby, which is like you show up, but you didn't get on the truck, Mm. which means you're ready to go for the next, the next truck, or you do duties around the hall to prepare the trucks for what's coming up or gear checks or things like that. So you're paid, you still paid if you not go on. If you don't get on the truck, you still, yeah, you still get paid because you still take time out of your day to show mm-hmm. up to respond. And like, it's, it's not, you don't get, it's not like you're making money mm-hmm. off of doing this. You, you get paid enough to kind of cover your gas and, and 
maybe is it an hourly rate yeah yeah you can say uh, yeah probably it's roughly 21 bucks an hour yeah. um depending on what your skills are maybe you get paid a little bit more than that um mm. but that's very unique to what fire hall you're from based on what the taxpayers can afford to pay mm. so lake country is really decent in that i think they get paid 21 bucks an hour some mm. halls get paid 15 bucks an hour mm. some which are called volunteer fire halls don't get paid at all mm. which means like they're true volunteers the pater goes off and they just donate their time to mm. to better serve the community of course this is lake country fire which is a paid on call fire department or composite really mm. you've got career fire which is where i'm headed to which is like you get paid a decent wage to always be ready to go. And the expectation is that you're there and you can respond as quick as you can. And your training is a lot more. You handle a lot more. Right. You do a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. The, for anyone who wants to get into this the requirement, is there like official requirement, like physical tests? mental test like w what kind of stuff do you need to do well i guess also it's different if you are going to what you're going to get to now or volunteer or paid on call um but generally speaking is there like the f the first entry test like what is that like yeah so it depends on kind of where you're going i'd say uh, I, to make things easy and generalize so it doesn't apply to everywhere you kind of got three situations you got career requirements mm -hmm. you've got paid on call requirements it's okay. <laughs> you've got uh <laughs> it's okay. hey how are you doing good i'm good. sit try come it. sit here try it i'm wondering yeah okay, okay. Try, it. try it we'll, uh, we'll come we'll You're come back to the different yeah we'll go back <laughs> hi this is <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Take the mic. Take, take the mic. It is, yes. Yeah, yeah. it's crabby ASMR. Okay. Christopher Crab. <laughs> I feel like I have like the, the world's worst paste pasties right now, too. Smell, it's not mold, smell is it? Smell inside the. Oh my god. <laughs> is it a one bite thing or should I? You put it all in your mouth, yeah. Well, the the crispy crab it this is a no for Jenna. Anyway, Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Yeah, you're welcome. I will come back. Welcome to John anytime. I will come back anytime to try out snacks. We need more snacks. More snacks, yeah. If anyone wants to sponsor us and give us some snacks. Sun chips. Sun chips if you want to sponsor us. If you see us. We really, we would, we would really enjoy your product. Adios. <laughs> Basically, what what does it take to to enter? What what are like the, the tests and stuff? Whether it is like physical, oh, no, it was, 
Um, it, it, the, like first of all, what what are the tests to to get in? Yeah, that's got to break it down into kind of like three different groups. Like you've got career, which is generally in a, a fairly populated area um, that has a municipality that's gonna financially support it. You've got um, paid on call, which tends to be kind of like I'd say intermediate, so not really rural. Um, could be. Um, but maybe not quite a super developed city. Um, and then you've got like full on what I consider like rural volunteer fire departments. So we'll start at the bottom and work our way up. Volunteer departments are like a, Hey, your body moves. You have a vehicle. And you have a, a vested interest in protecting your community, like you're on. Mm. Come start showing up to practices. We'll get you certifications as the fire hall, usually research or things like that, which is, I mean, your your basic, your your stereotypical basic firefighting things are, are first medical response or FR, first responder three. Um, and then some form of exterior operations firefighting. Uh, and then could be maybe a little bit of um, motor vehicle accident response, maybe even some extrication, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how, how things used to be. Now there's what you would consider a playbook, which is like minimum standards of what you need to have in order to be a firefighter, whether it's um, paid on call, volunteer, or a career. You want to walk through? You're good to walk through. Yes, I was also just gonna take a little video. I'll take it from. Oh there. yeah, some BTS. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so, the you your minimum standards, your playbook really defines now what is required of paid on call and volunteer fire halls to be able to be a fire service, and that's their way of putting in standard safety certifications so that everybody's kind of on the same page so kind of what you need to have as a as a paid on call firefighter is going to be some form of fr or emr so first responder or emergency medical responder which are kind of different grades of uh, emergency medicine and then usually your firefighter one or two or full service um, all three of those together would be the equivalent of what you'd call the nfpa um 1001, which is like your bare bones, basic firefighter standards, Mm -hmm. uh, certification. But in, in BC, we call them firefighter one, firefighter two and full service. So firefighter one is exterior operations. How can I put water on a burning building from the outside? Um, firefighter two is your interior operations. Like how do I survive inside a burning building and put a fire out and search for victims and save life and property? Then your full service is like gets into a little bit more of the managerial side, a little bit of the MBA stuff, a little bit more of the how to create a pre-plan, which is like how do I survey this this house and make sure I have a plan for how to tackle it if a fire happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, what do we call like FR? You've got your NFPA 1001 equivalent, and then usually your air brake endorsement on your driver's license. 
So if you have a class five driver's license, um, you can go and get an air brake endorsement. You do an air brake course, which teaches you the basics of air brakes, um, which is like your minimum for paid on call stuff. Driving those trucks mm -hmm. uh, limits you to kind of a, a single, single axle um, fire truck that has air brake system in it. And then some form of hazmat awareness like the the general the specialties go in like awareness operations technician so like awareness is like hey i know what this is i know what to do to prevent the community and myself from getting harmed operations is like okay i can start to set up a few things to help out and technicians like i can walk right up to that radioactive material yeah terrible example but i could walk right up to that um, super toxic material, put it in a containment source, uh, make sure things are sterilized and get myself out safely. Mm. Um, so you usually need some sort of hazmat, uh, awareness level for your paid on call firefighter stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of in the interior here, especially where wildfire is prevalent. Usually they'll ask you to get some for some sort of basic wildland firefighting, um, safety course is done i think the the name for the course is wsp wpp uh, wsp wildland structure protection wildland wfp wildland firefighter something anyways it's crazy ac we love our acronyms crazy acronym basically means like you understand the basics of what a fire a wildland yeah. fire is you understand the ranks of fire <clears throat> you understand how the weather affects it how the temperature affects it how the humidity affects it a little bit about the geography and topography of it a little bit about the tactics um and a whole lot about how to keep you and yourself and your company safe um, then structure protection sprinkler protection usually kind of comes as an add-on on top of that um, but that's kind of your bare bones basic for um Paid on call stuff. Then your requirements for career right now are a class three driver's license, which is um, your ability to operate a dual rear axle, um, basically a big heavy truck with dual rear axle and air brakes. Um, and then and it's like a professional driver certification, which basically means you can drive professionally. And then uh, you have your NFPA 1001, which is your kind of basic, your standard firefighting principles. Um, some places are asking for your N uh, NFPA um, 1002, um, which is how to operate a pump and a pump panel. Mm -hmm. And that's really complicated because you have to understand um, flow, pressure, uh, equations, pressure loss, how to use different volumes at different pressure like it's the math behind it is nuts and mm. then you get to this panel that has a bunch of gauges and levers and meanwhile you have to listen to a terrible radio from somebody who's asking for something it's very complicated mm. um i don't have that by the way and um then you usually have your fr3 or emr emergency medical responder in BC, uh, everywhere except for, I think it's Kitimat usually. Yeah, you have your FR or EMR. Kitimat's gone to um, a standard where you need to have a primary care paramedic um, certification. 
which is nuts. I mean, primary care paramedic is like its own career. So you need to have that to be a firefighter. Um, yeah. I don't think it's nuts. I think it helps the community a lot. I think it's just really tough to ask people to basically train for two careers to get one. Um, and then what else do you have on top of that? Usually a lot of um, other skills or related certifications. So usually a, a auto extrication, which is how to cut a car apart with a bunch of different tools, stabilize it, safety, stuff like that. Usually some sort of confined space rescue technician. Um, usually they'll ask for things like flat water rescue, which is how to operate a boat and rescue people on the water or ice rescue. If you're in an area where you get a lot of frozen lakes, which is how to rescue people from the ice. Um, maybe some higher level wildland stuff, depending on what's going on. Definitely a lot of incident management stuff, uh, ICS courses. Um, yeah. How to get those things, like what skills do you have to pass? I can tell you that for Lake Country, because I used to, um, it's weird saying that, I used to help with the recruitment processes. We usually have a, it's all people volunteer for it, right? They, they apply for it, but they really, they're from the community. They first requirement is you have to live in the community you're going to serve. So you apply for it and then you get invited to an, an information session. You show up for an information session. We tell you kind of what we do, how we do it, what training you inspect, the commitment you can expect, what we expect from you. Uh, and then if you're interested, you, um, have to do a, what's called a, uh, a physical, our physical at Lake country is, um, eight or nine different stations. Each station is timed. There's a few minutes of break between the stations. It's a similar to ours is not quite, but similar to a CPAT, um, which I think, I think stands for certified professional athletic test or something like that. I don't even know if that's true. I think I just came out of that one right on my butthole, but anyways, uh, it, ours was you ran the beep test and we asked you to get a score of eight or higher. Um, and then you carried a few fire extinguishers around an obstacle course. You had to drag a 180 pound dummy 50 feet. Um, you had to climb a hose tower with two, two and a half inch lines. So probably the equivalent of 50 to 60 pounds on your shoulder, mm -hmm. um, without touching the railings, four stories, uh, and then back down a rope pull, which is probably the equivalent of pulling a 40 pound dumbbell up four flights of stairs with a rope. So you kind of hoist it over the edge, um, a confined space tube to figure out if you're, um, claustrophobic. So mm. they put you in a, a tube and ask you to crawl through it. And then, um, you do a hose drag, which is a pressurized uh, length of hose that you have to drag a certain distance. Uh, and then we ask you to climb our ladder truck, which is 75 foot, um, aerial ladder, uh, attached to a fire truck that you climb up and we get 75 foot off the ground on a big piece of metal. It kind of gets a little sketchy. So they say, Hey, look down at the ground. Tell me how many fingers I'm holding up. Look up at the sky, that kind of stuff. Okay. You're good. Come on back down. If you can get through, you have to patch each station individually to get to the next. Um, when you get through all of them, it's kind of an accumulation of the scores based on the vibes that the members who put you through the test get and your results, you might get invited for an interview. Um, you sit down with the interview panel, which is usually a lieutenant or a captain or a chief, uh, and they decide whether or not you're going to be a good fit for the, the, the service. If you are, 
then you start nine months of training, hmm. which is four out. And this is in class hours, four hours on Tuesday, four hours on Thursday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, uh, eight hours on Saturday, sometimes Sunday. Uh, and on top of that, you get a textbook this thick that you have to read and tests that you have to do to perform. In return, the fire department pays for your certifications through the Justice Institute of British Columbia. So you can get a pretty good um, a, a pretty good return on your investment, <coughs> but it's quite a bit to do if you have a life. Mm, yeah. So Yeah, it sounds like a, a good amount of hours. Yeah, and then past that point, like if you're going through things and you're you graduate, you become a recruit and you, you get to respond to calls, you get to do stuff. If you put in time and effort and energy and you're the type of people that they look for, then opportunities will present themselves in further course advancement. You can go and take your structure protection courses. You can go and take your um, wa uh, sprinkler protection courses. You can specialize in flat water, in ice rescue, in auto extrication, mm. in hazmat, in yada, 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 yada. Um, to, to pass the career side of things, um, it's, it's a little bit, it's really competitive. It's really competitive to get in. Um, especially if you're in kind of some of the areas that are a little bit more populated because they get three to 400 applicants every time they're looking for 10 or 15 people. Mm. Uh, but the process is mostly the same from Prince Rupert down to Vancouver you submit an application and they usually ask you for a certain amount of documents. So it's usually proof of your certifications, a cover letter, a resume. Um, and then like, don't use chat GPT to write your resume or your cover letter. Like honestly, a generic, like a cover letter is, I think in my opinion, way worse than one that you make, even if the one you make doesn't sound like picture perfect professional. Mm. Uh, but that's just my opinion. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, if everybody looks up how to make a fire cover letter, they're all the same. Then whoever's reading it gets 500 of the same cover letters. They're just going to be like, oh. yeah, you know, you got to be creative on the prompt you, you give to the tell them, tell the, them some yeah. personal things. Like, why yeah. do you want to do it? What made you want to do it? You know what you're going to get out of it? Why you think you could see yourself in these communities? So you, you do that. And then if you get selected and like say 500 go in, maybe. 70 get selected for the next step, which is usually to do a written test, hmm. um, which is anywhere from a hundred or more questions on all of the material that you're supposed to know from your certifications. Hmm. So if you did your courses and your schooling, right? Some, some people do it the way I did it, which is through paid on call. Some people just pay to go down to Texas for two weeks to get the certifications, which you can do. You can go to fire Academy down there. You better be current on your knowledge because you write your written test and it's a bunch of questions from everything. And based on your scores, you'll get a call for the next step. And the mm -hmm. next step might be a, um, a physical in person. So my physical for Prince Rupert started with a um, auto extrication farmer's carry. So a 40-pound tool and a 60-pound tool um, for 50 feet. Put them down, picked the 40-pound tool up, and then I had to hold it at... Um, various heights for 30 seconds pressing a piece of paper against a surface to make sure that I could hold the tools hmm. when that was done um, I had to drag a 180 pound dummy 
through a serpentine course um, that was about seven bends over a span of 50 feet. So drag it around without having the dummy's feet touch any of the, of the cones and then drag it all the way back. Meanwhile, you're in a turnout jacket, which is like a big winter parka, turnout pants, which is like heavy snow pants, and you have a 50-pound air tank on your back with a helmet on and you're wearing thick structure gloves. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. Um, so you go and you do the dummy drag uh, and then you had to climb a 24-foot extension ladder um, four five times in a certain amount of time. Um, then you had to drag an inch and three quarter pressurized hose. So inch and three quarter is kind of the going to be the diameter of the hose pressurized with water, which means it's containing water pressurized to so many PSI. So like there's a decent amount of water in there. So the further you go, the harder it is to drag a certain distance. Um, then you had to hit a tire with a sledgehammer for six feet, seven feet or something like that. Then, and this is all within two to three minutes of each other. Then you go back inside and you run the beep test and your expectation was you got a, a score of eight or higher. Um, and so that was my physical with, um, Prince Rupert. Then if you're successful on that, then they usually invite you up for, uh, a skills evaluation or a live-in, which is like, Hey, come on up. We want to see how you do firefighting things. So mm. how do you search a building? How do you take a hose line in? How do you pull a hose line from the truck? How do you, um, how's your first medical response training? How do you respond in those kind of scenarios? How do you fly an extension ladder? How do you collapse it? Um, how do you, mostly what they're trying to see is how you work with your team, if you're going to be a good fit and stuff like that. And then there's usually some aspect of some sort of live-in characteristics where it's like, hey, how do you operate in the fire hall? When we cook a meal, do you do the dishes? Do you clean up? Do you, do you mm. mop the floor? The big part of it is like, when you get on career fire, you're going to spend 10, sometimes 14 hours with four or five guys. Like you have to be a certain type of person. that's not going to piss everybody off. Yeah. You know, they, they have to get along with you. You have to get along with them, you know? So they're, I think they're really trying to see if you're going to be a, a decent human being. And for the most part, I think most people are decent human beings. Um, unless you're born in a barn, like you generally know to pick up after yourself. Like if the mm. floor is dirty, sweep it. If the place is a mess, clean it, you know, mm. the garbage is full, empty it. Um, yeah. So there's a certain amount to live in. And then if you're successful with that, they sometimes will do a, a psychometric assessment, which is like, they ask you a bunch of questions. I did one, the CPI 260. It's 260 questions that you can only answer true or false. Hmm. These aren't like plain Jane questions. Like, do you like the color blue? Oh, really? Yeah. It's like, do you like to go dancing? And you're like, well, I like to go to dances with the rugby club. I'll dance with the rugby club when we have our, our year end dance, but I don't go to dances. Mm-hmm. but I do like dancing. But if I put true, I like dancing. They're going to think I'm some festival raver. I don't go to festivals and get blasted out of my mind. Like, uh, 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 you know? So yeah. how do you answer that question? Questions, yeah. Right. And basically 260 of these questions where it's like through the algorithm of how you answer, which questions gives you a, a metric of where you place in 27 different categories. Hmm. Interesting. And the categories all have a baseline based off of 
6,000 people's responses. So the average is 6,000 people's responses. Mm. So they can be like, this person's a psychopath. They're like, this person's exceptionally em empathetic. This person's really good at management, not quite so good at feeling things, right? Mm. So they, they kind of- Only true and fo or false questions. Only true and false questions, yeah. right? Interesting. Yeah. So if that's good, um, then you get invited for like the chief's interview, which is like you sit down with the chief and usually a panel and they ask you a few more questions and then they make their final decisions on whether or not they want you. Usually these tests and everything cost you anywhere from 200 to $800 to complete. So wow. that sounds like a lot of things. If you're going to apply for a career, like you have to be serious. It has to be something you want. You've got to work for it. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, ma that makes sense, right? Like, that there's all these these tests it makes sense yeah there's i think there's this i think there's this idea that career firefighting is like it's, it's a it's a gravy job mm. like you get it and you're set for life i think what people don't understand is that you've effectively signed up to go into what we call an idlh environment like uh, immediate dangerous to life and health mm. environment to save people or you put yourself in a position where you're seeing catastrophic events like people's worst days mm, yeah. right now i can only speak from the the paid on call side of things mm. which is um i find it exceptionally hard because you you usually leave a really good situation like you're sitting down having dinner with your family to go to a call that nobody wants to go to, which is a, a two-year-old having seizures. And then when the call's done, you have to go back to your family. There's not a whole lot of decompression time. Mm. And I'll be the first person to say, I don't, I haven't dealt with nearly, nearly the amount of traumatic stuff that most of my paid on call friends have. I've had a few crappy calls. Like some of them affect you terribly, but not nearly the volume that one of my closest fire buddy has. Cause he's been on the department for 14 freaking years. You know, I think it affects everybody differently. I think a lot of it comes down to how you prepare yourself for it. And right now there is a huge movement to, to being resilient to it, to, to preparing yourself to face these things. So sleeping well, eating well, exercising well, having a counselor before you need to use them mm. um, going for mandatory mental health checkups with your counselor. Yeah. Like, Hey, are you good now? Like in six months, are you going to be good then? You know, when you witness something horrific, you need to talk about it. That's not the right time to go and get a counselor. Mm. Um, yeah. The mental health aspect. Cause like, yeah. Consistently confronted to, Oh, it's intense situation like that. There's things, and, and everybody's different, right? Like, my worst call would be a lot different from my, my buddy who's been on the hall for 14 years. You know, like, something that would, would put me in shambles, he might not have an issue with. Something that puts him in shambles, I might not have an issue with. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You know, but, but going to these, res these critical responses, um, when you're paid on call is tough because you're usually doing something, and then you go do this, and then you got to go back to whatever you're doing. I found that I went from working at the university uh, in the summertime, getting ready for students to come back to school to responding to my town almost burning down. And then to go back after that was done to the university 
uh, I had to take a little bit of time to decompress because there's people who are asking for things like, hey, I need my office painted because it's the wrong shade of pink and it, you know, I, it doesn't, it's not conductive for learning. And can you do it in two days? Because I need it done. And you're like, dude, I just came back from stopping three subdivisions from burning down. Mm. And like, you're going to get mad at me because your office is the wrong shade of pink. Yeah. But you put it into perspective and you're like, they don't know what you're dealing with. You have to yeah. carry that through to work. And you're like, you know what? <clears throat> you take the time, you decompress, you deal with it, you feel it eventually the waves of feeling stop being so big if that makes sense like mm -hmm. they they're still waves but they stop affecting you so badly um and then you can kind of get back into it yeah or i for all of that i should say and then i kind of get back into it because that's how i deal with it yeah yeah but i mean there's and it's all about it's all about managing it right like the the fire department's come a long way in terms of how they deal with these things um, when you have what you'd call like a critical incident which is usually has to do with like death dismemberment um, emotional like significant emotional trauma something that's triggering to somebody you'd have what's called a, a, a tailboard talk or a, a debriefing of the call which is like you and everybody who responded to it sit on the backboard of the of the truck before you go home we say, hey, let's talk about it. What mm. happened? What did everybody feel? What did everybody dislike? Do we need to have a follow-up conversation? And for mm. some of these ones that are like critical, like you respond to somebody who hung themselves, like maybe we need to have a critical incident stress meeting, which is yeah. like, hey, we're going to sit around in a circle and we're going to hash this out so it doesn't fill your cup up. I think the tough part about the tough part about paid on call halls is that you respond to your own area. So sometimes you see something come up like 68 year old male cardiac arrest and you look at the address and it's like, it's your neighbor's house. Mm. You know, you just talked to him over the fence the day before. Now you're going to go and do chest compressions on him while his poor wife wails away in the living room. Right? Like mm. it's, I'm not saying career guys don't have to, deal with that but typically career guys tend to work in an area that's a little bit farther away from home they might not know per se everybody mm. so that can be a it can be a huge thing as well right what is the well i don't know if you can you can you can answer well i was going to say what is like the, the most complicated situation you've had but i don't know if you can actually like co like complicated or like what's the worst what's the worst response i've had to to a, a call well the one that was the most challenging uh, yeah for sure um we were uh, so i was at the the main fire hall uh, perform what we call a duty shift which is where you get to stand by um and do things around the hall uh, and then if a call comes in, you go on to it as part of your daytime response. Um, and we got a call to a daycare for a two-year-old having um, seizures. Mm -hmm. And um, got there, and I thought, man, it's a kid call. It's going to really affect me. I've got a son. He was one at the time. Um, and it's a, it's a little boy, and he got pretty violently ill and started to have temp like fever induced seizures. And so 
I, I do the usual. I go through my assessments of the, the surroundings, of the patient, of everything that I can get, a history and all that. And I mean, part of what you do is you say, hey, what's the care card? And, you know, you get the care card and you read the name and the date of birth and all that kind of stuff. And um, I read all through this. I read the care card and it didn't register to me um, until one of the daycares often call the parents when these things happen. So they called the parent. It didn't register to me that the patient that I was taking care of was the son of one of my recruits. So this is a gentleman that I had spent Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, Saturdays with helping train, getting to know personally, like having, having him over for dinner or, or going out for a beer. Um, it wasn't until the, the, one of the daycare ladies says, Oh, the, the dad's here. And this gentleman walks in and it all falls into place. The last name on the care cards, his last name you know, it's, it's another, so it's a dad, like it's not only a dad, it's a guy that I know, mm. like coming in, dude probably drove a mile a minute to get there for his son. Cause his son was having, like had to have all this attention and you're like, Oh my God. I had to take a step back from that one. I had to talk to my uh, mm. Lieutenant and, and I was pretty close to saying, Hey, you got to pull me off of this one. Cause I'm too, too attached to it. You know, luckily the child did really well. The dad was, was, uh, very calm, cool, collected. He has previous fire experience. Um, he's a really awesome guy. And so everybody ended up being okay, but it wasn't until I had that like emotional connection with mm. the dad where it really hit. And it was just like the, probably the toughest, the most stressful situation I've been in where it was like going good, going good, going good. And then that moment where your heart just stops and you're like, ah, yeah. Yeah. Did, was it because you, you knew the guy or because it was a situation you could identify yourself to? Uh, I think because I, I, my guess would be that I was doing an all right job of, of keeping myself separate from the situation until I realized I knew the guy. Mm. And then like that barrier that I put up between here's a two-year-old boy going through an issue, those barriers, like that, that level of, of empathy and, and um, realization, just tidal wave right over top of the barriers I'd put up to protect myself in that situation. So something that would have normally been troublesome to me, I'd, I'd stopped. And then a, a bigger power came in and was like, yeah, now nah, you're going to feel this. You're going to feel this right now. Mm -hmm. Really intense. Yeah. And like the good news is that, I mean, the, the kid was doing awesome by the time the dad showed up, like his temperature had come down. He was no longer seizing, yeah. you know, he wasn't smiling. Nobody's happy at that point in time. He's scared, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm doing something where, the previous guest uh, leaves a question for the next one Ooh, I like it. without knowing. So I'm going to now ask you as a kind of like a final yeah. question, this one, and then you're going to tell me a question for the next one. Yeah. So the last question was actually Bunny. 
Yeah, yep. that was when I was good. And the question was um, special place in my heart for those guys. What uh, drives uh, your passion? And I kind of want to like maybe turn this question like toward this since like you're going into fire career. Like what drives what drives this this uh, this path to you? I'd be lying if I said it was anything other than than the thrill of responding and the sense of being able to help. Like mm -hmm. there, it's a two part and they're for me they're deeply intertwined. One, it's mm -hmm. exciting. It's exciting as all hell. But that's intertwined with it's exciting because you usually go to somebody who's having a really bad day and usually you leave them better than you found them. Mm, interesting. Um, my dad always told me uh, a man's greatness can be measured in his willingness to be kind. And that's something I've lived with for a long time in that... Um, it's something I'd like to carry on forward for this passion of like, mm -hmm. you can show a lot of kindness to people in some pretty bad situations. It goes a long way, even if you can't help them, mm -hmm. even if you can't change them circumstances or, or, or that you can show them kindness and that tends to help. Um, I think that's what drives my passion is, is the excitement to, to respond and help yeah. to help them. Uh, it's always been a community thing for me. When I started in, in Sasmat down on the coast, it was um, a community of people who brought me in that I shared um, a lot of a lot of things with, and I wanted to give back. In Lake Country, it was the same thing. It was a, an area of my life that I'd spent summers vacationing. Um, my uncle was on the fire department before I was. Um, you know, we went to, we, we had situations happen and he knew how to deal with it. And like the people were much better off because of it. And I was like, that's really cool. I want to do that. And I look forward to carrying that passion into, into what I do with Prince Rupert fire. Yeah. Um, it's gonna be tough to keep up to the level that those guys have up there though. I sat yeah. around the table with those guys and those guys are all in for that city. Mm. but that's exciting yeah to join those guys because you feel it the same so nice yeah that was a solid answer thanks no that was really good um thank you very much thanks for having me on uh, that was uh that was really good we it went like all over the place hey? that's good i had a good time yeah thanks for having well, me on you're welcome all right guys it is 11.15, and that is a wrap. Boom.